and 2021, the free hearts and minds of the world are standing together in celebration of freedom and community. The people are waking and organizing. The people are recognizing their own power. The people of the world are uniting against the Great Reset. The people are celebrating the Greater Reset. From May 24th to 28th, join us as we gather online and in person for the Greater Reset. From activation to expansion. Over five days, we will focus on practical solutions for the most pressing issues of our time. Over 30 world-class speakers will share ideas in five different themes. May 24th, Mind, Body, and Soul. May 25th, Regenerate the Earth. May 26th, The Counter-Economy. May 27th, Liberating Technology. May 28th, Community and Relationships. Don't miss out on the next step in the Greater Reset. It's time to get activated. This is our world, our way. All right. I think we're live, John. Okay. You there? We're live. How are you? Hey, man. It's, we're doing good here in ZY. Everybody's still kind of piling in in the room right now. But everybody, please take your seats. We're getting started here. And uh, what's, what's it looking like in Central Texas, man? All right. We're here in Buda, Texas, also known as Buda. Having a little bit of internet connection issue. I hope you guys can hear us loud and clear down here. We've got a beautiful crowd in the audience. We're excited to be here for the Regenerate the Earth. How's Mexico? The weather down there? Mexico is going well. Your, uh, your audio and internet is breaking up quite a bit, brother, just to let you know. It's, it's, it's pretty hot out here in Zewa, but everybody's, is everybody enjoying themselves here? You've been to the beach? Yeah? Enjoying yourself? Yeah, we're stoked to be out here for day two. Um, I guess, you know, we have, a, we have four or five speakers today. I'll be giving a short talk. We're about to hear from Johnny, my buddy from Houston, who's been doing lots of good work in the community, urban, act, agriculture, activism space. He's going to talk. We're going to hear from permaculture experts, teachers, Curtis Stone, Penny Livingston. Uh, we're going to hear from, I'm blanking now, on every, uh, Marjorie Wildcraft and so many other awesome people today focused on this Regenerate the Earth theme. Yesterday, we were talking about mind, body, and soul, spiritual healing, mental healing, physical healing. Today, it's all about how do we reconnect to the planet and do this in a way that empowers people. Most of our audience is familiar that the Great Reset, the World Economic Forum agenda, they have a nature-based agenda as well. They talk about a nature-based economy, but it's the kind of thing where you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. That's the, the nature reconnecting to the earth that they have in mind. And that's not what we're talking about. We want people to understand that you can talk about sustainability and regeneration and connecting to the planet and not be pushing United Nations propaganda, for example. You know, there's a, there's a way to balance that, to actually connect to the planet, to grow our own food, to disconnect from these unsustainable food systems, and to continue to respect individual liberty and bodily autonomy. And that's the opposite of what these people's agenda is. So I'm excited to share that. and. I want to mention a couple of things. 
I'm going to see if we can get John back on if he's if it's working. I want to mention that as we talked about yesterday, we still have the People's Reset Contest yet. Has anybody watched the videos on the website by chance? I highly encourage you to. There are some amazing people sending us videos from around the world, showing us and documenting what they have done with their lives since January. And it's just, it's so empowering. And you can go to the website and you can vote. And if you want to submit a video, if you guys here have done some awesome things over the last couple months, we're taking video submissions till Friday. You have a chance to win $500 in Bitcoin cash. We're giving up to $800 for top three prizes. So go to the website, look under programs or the People's Reset video contest. Check out the videos, vote on your favorite, and submit your own if you want to. Submit them via Float or Odyssey. Don't send us a YouTube video. Submit it via Float or Odyssey because we're trying to get away from all those platforms. That's really awesome. And then the watch parties. We're going to show more watch party uh, pictures today. In fact, I don't know if we have it pulled up, Ramiro, but there was one that came in at the end of the day. Maybe we can get that up real quick. Um, yeah, people are just – there was one – I don't know if they mentioned where it was from, but it was literally a room as full as this, maybe even more full, just people getting together to hear these talks. So shout out to everybody out there who's listening and watching. I know it's in the evening time for our friends in Europe, and we appreciate you guys being with us. And again, we do have the translations going on at the web, on the website. If you want to send your friends who speak Spanish, Hindi, German, Dutch – um, French or Portuguese, they can go to the website and they can get plugged in and they can listen along like we're trying to do here today on our screen. So yeah, that's pretty much what I wanted to say. I don't know if we can get John back if he wants to share a couple of thoughts before we bring on our first guest. John coming back. All right, John, what you got, brother? Back. Tethered to my phone. R- racking up that data. All right. So yeah, thank you so much for the intro. Apologies for the connection issues over here. I the great reset that this the World Economic Forum positions as though they're concerned with the environment and sustainability is one of their big motivators, and perhaps they are. But the way that they want to go about restoring the environment or benefiting the environment through almost criminalizing carbon emissions, right? And we're all carbon life forms, and they want to do this cap and trade and essentially Bill Gates. And the Microsoft entity wants to create a planetary supercomputer where they literally track every single bit of biodiversity on Earth control. And so, environment, but rather than relying on these centralized institutions and this to overcome these problems, we want to bring it back to the roots intended. We want to encourage people to engage in permaculture and regenerative agriculture. And I think a lot of people, when they hear about this great reset agenda, they get overwhelmed and alarmed. And like we had as a key theme yesterday, let's make sure that we step out of the victimhood and step into a state of empowerment because we have the exact same capability, if not better capability, to create a world that we desire. And I would argue that it's going to be easier for us because the message and the action that we are pushing for and encouraging is more in alignment with human nature and with the natural balance and harmony that we found that we find in natural systems. So I want us all to kind of just set that intention that we want to align back with the way things ought to be, the way things used to be, and reject this great reset agenda and feel powerful enough to replace it with our agenda, an agenda of the people and the plants and the animals. All right, that's all I got. All right. Back to you. 
Back to me in Ziwa. All right, let's do it. Let's before we go further, I want to remind and let it, let our crowd know you can get drinks over there. We got vendors showing up over here. Catch some of that kombucha. And I'm going to introduce our first speaker. This is a good friend of mine who uh, I've known since 2013, I want to say. Some of you know a little bit of my background. I come from Houston, Texas. I started an activist group called the Houston Freethinkers back in 2010. And it was just a community organization. You know, we had a couple of houses that we used to call the Freethinker House, community gardens, activism, protests, the whole thing. And in 2013, the gentleman I'm about to introduce showed up at the house along with some other friends, like people periodically do, and said, hey, I want to get plugged in. I want to get more involved in my community. I'm trying to, you know, do something that matters. And he really became an integral part to what became the Houston Freethinkers, and ultimately he, we moved in together. We had a house that was called the Freethinker House, me and him and our other buddy. And so many beautiful things happened there and continue to happen. Um, Johnny is just a really good dude, a musician. He's also co-host of the, sh the radio show we have back in Houston called Freethinker Radio. Um, he's just a talented person all around and somebody who I think really does give a crap about their community. And today he's going to share with us how we can do that, how we can build community using gar gardening and permaculture in a city environment. A lot of the speakers today are going to be talking mainly about, you know, getting land, kind of going off the grid. He's going to be talking about how to do that in the heart of the city in Houston, Texas. So please welcome Johnny Schaefer to the stage. How's everybody doing? Everybody good? You guys awake? Nobody's hungover from last night? No, you went to the beach too long. Everybody at home, what's up? It's great to be here. I'm Johnny, like Derek said. And uh, I live at a place called the House of Jay, located on the east end of Houston, Texas. And it's pretty much a community space. And we've tried to be able to provide... Uh, tried to be able to provide lots of different aspects of freedom um, through that space. And a big part of it is sustainability. I mean, arguably, I could be thrown on the community side of things, but we do have a garden and we do find it important. And I'm going to be sharing with you guys um, kind of some tools and some ideas of how you could start your own community space in your city. If you're in a city environment and you don't want to move to the sticks, you know, and get away from like the bars and the people or the art community or whatever it is that ties you to the city. I'm pretty tied to the city and I enjoy it. And uh, I do think that we need to have a place of freedom, a place where we can have mutual friends and like-minded people around to share our ideas, share our projects, host events, and uh, really give you an opportunity of a place to become a leader in your own right, in your own community, and give other people the opportunity to become leaders as well. So I think the easiest way to intro this is by showing our little video. We're just starting a, a YouTube channel, sharing these ideas and trying to grow and um, do those kinds of things. So I'm going to share a little video with you guys, and you'll have a better idea of what's going on before we start the talk. So let's do that really quick. Welcome to the House of Jay. We are a DIY house venue and community garden located on the east end of Houston, Texas. For the past four years, we have been committed to putting on the best music and art events possible. Our living room has felt the sweat of countless bands. 
Our walls have been brushed by local artists. Our backyard has tasted some of the best local food, and we've made a hell of a lot of friends along the way. Hey, who else is not from Houston? Who, who's not your who, who travels to Houston? California, California. Where else? Come on, shout it out. Where you at? Ohio. Mississippi. I fucking love you. Where you at? Ohio. Ohio. Where else? Where you at? Houston. Yeah. I fucking love you. Gardening has been a part of this project from day one. Through trial and error, we are finally ready to show what an urban Houston garden is capable of. You can catch us outside almost every Sunday for our weekly garden day. In this strange journey of opening up our home to these possibilities, we have grown a lot as individuals. The awesome relationships we've made, inspiring people we've learned from, and all of the lessons learned the hard way have led us to focus on becoming the best versions of ourselves. This channel will be dedicated to sharing easily applicable ideas, habits, and skills for making connections, growing events, and bettering yourself. You can also expect to see us spotlighting tons of local music, food, and art that deserves to be appreciated. So join us on this adventure to create the type of DIY community that everyone can be a part of. Okay, so yeah, now you guys can see the kind of crazy stuff that happens in our living room. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I mean, some of you guys might be asking, like, what, what in the world does a, you know, punk rock venue or a music venue have to do with this kind of space or this kind of stuff? Well, I grew up uh, listening to punk rock, and it, it was really what inspired me, because <clears throat> many of you might know the punk's dead joke. Well, punk never really dies. And the reason that punk rock doesn't die is because it's its own thing. Kind of what we're trying to create here. Our own economy, our own systems. Because when the mainstream music rejected punk rock, they said, we're not going to sell your shirts at our, our store. Well, even though they do now because people sold out. But they said, we're not going to sell your shirts at our stores. The record labels aren't going to pick you up. Our venues won't book you. You know, we won't promote your events. They said they didn't whine and cry and die. They started all of their own systems. They have their own systems of merch sales and their own websites. They have their own venues. They have their own connections and people took up the roles that they needed to take up. And I think in that sense, we can learn from punk and the, the, those styles of music by, you know, creating our own systems as well. And that's, that's how this house really has, like, grown into. Like, it started off with music. It started off with wanting to be independent in those ways. And then there was so much added with the element of freedom. Like, when I was getting involved with the Houston Freethinkers, the coolest thing about the Houston Freethinkers for me with Derek was, like, I showed up to the meeting, and he's like, you can be as involved as you want. And that kind of blew my mind because there's, like, this community space where, as I would have been an 18-year-old just – angry and rebel without a cause, nowhere to put my energy. But here's this space where I can just literally tap into it. And it's a network. It's like I can throw 
an event and people will show up because they know of this thing. Or I can get involved in a garden or make connections those ways. So really what we're trying to do at the House of Jay is start those start that type of community and really inspire other people to start those types of communities in their cities. Um, so, you know, what, what is a community space really? It's not, it doesn't have to have music in your living room. You don't have to let people color on your walls or anything like that. <laughs> you just really need to have a place with, uh, you know, obviously a yard or maybe enough space to host events somewhere where you're willing to have people come over and share their skills, share their, uh, you know, their um, motivations and their things that they're trying to sell and try to do. So that's really what a community space is all about. It's about bringing the people together and giving them an opportunity to share something that they have to offer. And these spaces provide a ton of value um, in lots of ways. Uh, we believe that when you, whenever you have food, music, and art, that uh, you really can't go wrong with that. They bring people together um, without needing those kind of complicated theories like you it's it's the magic formula in a way when people come together for uh food music and art <clears throat> sorry when people come together for food music and art they're really coming to a space with a different mindset than you would normally in other events and uh you're able to cycle in a lot of new people new people to your space that you wouldn't have normally had access to uh through those, through those avenues. And uh, it's got a lot of different things. So like the city, there's different needs for the city and for urban, for urban life. Uh, I think that when you move out into the, you know, the urban areas or the rural areas, you have different compromises that you deal with. You have more freedom in lots of senses, but also you don't have the freedom of tapping into people, bringing in new people to these ideas and that's really what we're aimed at through this, uh, through these ideas. So the city is really kind of like that double-edged sword, right? Because it's got the most state control. Wherever the city is the biggest, there's going to be more police, more rules, more arbitrariness, and uh, you're going to have to deal with that. But it also has one of our most valuable assets, which is, of course, people, you guys. You can't really throw an event two hours outside of the city and expect a good turnout. So these spaces are acting as like little freedom hubs and little areas where we can all find each other. That's like what we're trying to do. You want to, if there was more, um, more community spaces in every major city, the younger people are going to be flowing in. You know, it's, it's important for us to be recruiting uh, more, more agorists, more anarchists, more freedom-minded people but also it's important to be doing it in such a way to where we're not just like finger mashing the keyboard online and trying to be like, yeah, understand the ins and outs of the economics. Instead of doing that, they can just come here and participate in the economics. They can come here and participate in the anarchy. They can come here and understand that it's this peaceful place where I didn't get a business license. Like I'm not asking anybody for their permits to sell food at my house. Like I'm not trying to you know, set up or play by any of those rules, but I'm still here in the middle of the city, you know? And that there's so few places that can offer that, but really it's so easy to set up for yourself. It's so simple to just open your doors and host an event, but it sounds kind of hard. So hopefully I'm going to like get into some ideas of how to make that a little bit easier if it's something that you guys are interested into. 
Um, it's really more about like walking the walk than talking the talk for, for these types of houses. So if you want to have a music event where not everyone's forced to wear masks or show their vaccine passport, then you can host an event where not everyone's forced to wear masks or have a vaccine passport. If you want to have people there selling food without permits, you know, you can find that and make that happen. You guys kind of get the idea. It's, it's supposed to be an avenue to allow these types of events to occur. And when new people come in and they participate, they're going to be way more willing to listen to the theories and the ideas after they've already seen that, hey, this actually works and that we're not doing anything wrong. And, you know, it, people are growing and making money and really just creating abundance right there in your own backyard. So like I said earlier, the, the magic formula is truly, I believe, this. Uh, these are like the ingredients. It's music, art, food. Those are the main ones. Then on the side would be your location or your partners that you're working with, sustainable business practices, and then, again, that abundance mentality is really going to carry this, uh, this type of venue um, to the next level. So the music and art aspect is, is one of the, my favorite parts. I'm a musician. Obviously, you saw we like to run around in circles in my living room with all of our friends. But uh, the music and art, it's, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than just coming to some sweaty living room and getting drunk with your friends. That's not really what the music's about. Music is a, a universal language. It draws people together. It, it brings everyone's, it brings the best out of everybody. The artists in your community are the connectors. The musicians in your community are the connectors. Their voices go much further than, um, <clears throat> their voices go much further than most if you, if you don't have that kind of reach. So tapping in, into those artists, tapping into those types of people, if you were to find a popular musician in your town and they started getting onto the agorist idea, how many more people would that bring? And not only that, we're talking about young people. I have people at my house as young as 10, 15, 18, 50 years old. It's all ages, but I'm saying the young people are going to be our biggest asset because it's, they're, it's so difficult to reach them. And the propaganda is so strong and they don't see that these kinds of ideas are possible. Like anarchy, yeah, that's nice. Maybe I'll go live in a hut in the middle of nowhere because that sounds so appealing to an 18-year-old, you know? Not that it's not appealing because no shame on you if you want to live in a hut, okay? <laughs> but I'm just saying in the city, you know, the younger people are going to be interested in that. And bringing them into this type of lifestyle through the music, through the art, it's going to be a lot easier. Whenever you go to a show, you really feel like everyone there is on your team. You feel like a feeling of belonging. You know, even though you're maybe dressed different or your skin's a different color, or you speak a different language, you feel like everyone who's at this show is here for a reason. They're here because they care about like the same things. And when those ideas start getting, <clears throat> start growing even outside of the music, outside of the art, and they have more things to participate in, they're really just being brought up into this agorist lifestyle, into this anarchist lifestyle without even having to, you know, read Konkin, without even having to get into the documentaries and things like that, though hopefully they do eventually understand the problems of the world, you know. But really we want to, we're trying to use those musicians as a way to carry messages further than we would have normally and uh, a way of doing, like, during the show where the vibes are good and you can have conversations. Like, I've been saying this, uh, whenever the lockdown happened, it was terrible for our music scene. It was absolutely terrible because 
when there was no music happening, our differences were just so exposed, like online. Everyone's online, and they're like, all of a sudden, friends are not friends. They're arguing over economics and vaccines and things like that. Whereas if you're at my show and that topic came up, the conversation is going to be so much different. It's not going to be this keyboard warrior public thing where everyone's trying to one-up the other person. You're at a show. The barriers are down. Your guard's down. You know, you, you can talk about some of these ideas outside in between sets. And then maybe you disagree and maybe you take it out in the mosh pit. I don't know. Like you just it, – it, those kinds of differences really seem to melt away when you involve music and, uh, and art into that. Um, the other aspect, of course, is food, which is kind of a no-brainer, right? Like everybody uses that as like a little ploy to get people to come to their <laughs> their events, right? If you're saying, yeah, you come to my Freedom Cell meeting, like somebody might be like, okay, like what are we going to do? Are we going to talk about it? But, you know, if you're serving free curry coming straight from the garden and you have some drinks that you made and stuff like that and it seems more like a potlucky kind of thing, people are much more willing to come be a part of that and come – Get something out of that. So it's important that when you have these venues, you're always thinking about the value that you're giving the people that are coming. You want to have that, like, since we're from Texas, you want to have that southern hospitality, as my fiancé likes to say. <laughs> and we try to treat people like that and offer offer the value that, um, that they can get. So when they walk away, they're feeling like they won. You know, they're feeling like, hey, I, I learned something or I – I gained something from that, and I don't feel like I spent more energy or more time than I received in those senses. But in, in pretty much every city, there's going to be tons of local food also. And it's, it seems like unlikely, but if you look at the nooks and crannies, you can find those guys. You can find the food trucks and the people who are looking to get involved. Like Just from throwing the house, we've had multiple chefs come and hit us up and say, can I cook food at your house and just serve it? And it's just like, hell yeah, you can, man. <laughs> and, and we have a little event and maybe we'll have some like music out there. And, and you can start, kind of start to see how these things all start to like flow into each other. How when you have all these aspects, people are coming to your house, they're happy. Their guard is down. They're ready to talk about whatever and be a part of the community because the community is so much more than just your just your theories or your economics or your ideas of what you're doing. The community is the people. The community is what we share as people and what we enjoy as people. So everyone in this room has something to offer. I don't care if you knit socks or if you, you know, you cook food or make music, you know. These types of spaces could provide a place for you to share that with each other and to do it in a way where you don't have to compromise your morals. You don't have to compromise, um, you know, and – kind of bow down to daddy government when you're when you're making these transactions. It, our goal is to remove all the barriers to entry for becoming your own business person or your own musician or any of those things by making it as easy as possible, just like the punk rockers did. Anybody could play a show. Anybody could draw a picture and make a flyer, and that's what we want. You know, we want those people here. And if we don't get the artists, if we don't get those people – we're going to lose. We're going to lose. And that's what they're doing right now in the Greater Reset. They, they told us in Event 201 they're going to be using the celebrities. They're going to be trying to find everybody who they like. And I, I've, been, I've been very disappointed in a lot of my favorite musicians. I'll tell you that much. And, you know, it's important that we have access to 
the grassroots community that is going to be putting on these types of events. So having the food is also absolutely essential. No, any event is better with food, just obviously. Um, as for the next part of the magic formula, which would be location and your partnerships. Your location is super important. I think that you should try to find a place that's very central. Where we stay at in Houston, they have this joke, Houston's an hour away from Houston. <laughs> it's really far. So if I'm living like way out in the suburbs and trying to do this, you know, some people might be close to me, but other people could have to drive two hours. And again, with that barrier of entry, you want to make it as accessible as possible for people to find you and people to come. So if you find a centralized location, it's going to be the shortest distance for people in your city. And pretty much most cities, I hope, work around the same for that. So in not only that, but you hopefully want to have a place with a yard where you can grow food and uh, show that aspect of sustainability, which I'll get into in just a little bit. But you want to make sure you have, you know, just enough space for the event. And, you know, if you're going to be throwing music and stuff, it's probably a good idea to check on your neighborhood and <laughs> make sure you're not going to get the cops called every night and all that kind of stuff. So we've been pretty lucky with that where we live. But it, it is definitely a concern for other people um, where you're going to be at. But most of the time, I would definitely advise be as respectful as possible to your neighbors and if your house is a problem in the neighborhood, then you're not doing it right. You know, your neighbors should be happy to have you around. Even though we're loud and crazy, no one tries to get rid of us in our neighborhood because they see the garden, they see the happy people, and they see that I take care of our business. We make sure there's no trash and all that kind of stuff. Like We're trying to be something that's helping the community, not like that frat house on the corner. So that's more of the vibes that you really want to go for. And the partnerships, those are very important too. We finally, um, you know, kind of locked in with our two, with my fiance and my other best friend, Jeffer. Um, and we found something that works. And anytime we've really tried to, I mean, Derek, Derek does a lot of work with us too. And that was great. He actually kind of led the way of how to show, show me how to make these events and stuff. Like, so we started with like solstice events and things like that, but, um, <clears throat> Sorry. But yeah, if you have partners who don't get it, they can and they probably will ruin your progress. Uh, so if you're going to be going into this with roommates, make sure they know your intentions. Like I said, it's not necessarily as important for everyone who's coming to your house to be an agorist or be like, you know, anarchist. Exactly. You know, you want to, in fact, invite people who aren't. But as for the people that you're truly working with in your core, you want to make sure they have those values. Because otherwise you might butt heads. Like, I can't tell you how many times people have said, like, why don't you ask the government for some money to get a grant for your charities? And so I was like, well, we decided we're not going to do that as a house. We're never going to ask permission for any of our events. We're never going to, you know, go through that that avenue. <laughs> Thank you, Derek. Never going to go through that avenue for our, for our events. And, and we're going to show people that you really don't have to. And and that it's it's better that way. And that it's a, if... I don't want the government's blood money. You know, we're just gonna, we're gonna get, raise our own money because of that abundance mentality. Once again, some people are scared. They're scared that they can't make enough money or they're scared that they can't, you know, provide that value on their own. But that has to do with a scarcity mentality. Once you plug into this, you're gonna see the abundance that starts flowing into your life. Um, and so your sustainable business practices are very essential. You're basically trying to set an example. Like I said earlier, so if we're not communicating agorist, anarchist lifestyles, 
via, you know, hypothetical theories and, you know, books and documentaries, then how are we communicating them? We're using our actions. We're trying to communicate with our example. And so it's very important that you're setting that example, that you're using business practices that are the same. You know, like I said, no licenses and stuff, but it goes even beyond that into your personal relationships. Like, I hope that none of you are going to start one of these, these community spaces thinking you're going to be super rich or something like that. So when it comes down to it, when, when the artists are coming and when the um, food is coming and when somebody wants to set up a shop at your house, you should not be thinking about how can I make a buck off of that. You should be thinking about how can I create a win-win situation, which I'll recommend the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. If you guys have not read that, that's a great book on um, relationships. And it really has been something that we've built the, the house around because we want to provide value to people. We don't want to take value from people. And we want to have every relationship we make a win-win situation or we're not going to do it. It's period like that because – if we're not both walking away feeling like we gained something, then the transaction really isn't all that much worth it. So your sustainable practices like that are very important. Not only that, but just remember that as you're setting an example, you are a face of your community. You are an important person um, in your own right, and the way you treat people is going to go very far. And so if you're doing bad business or you're trying to, you know, I don't know. Even if you're just overreactive in certain situations, it's going to get around and you're going to lose the strength of your message. So you have to be calm, cool, and collected. You have to handle problems when they arise from a place of healing, from a place of win-win, and not any of that uh, rah-rah, virtue signaling, look at how nice we are because we kicked out this guy or this, that. You really just want to be able to um, have the have everybody looking at you as that's a guy or a girl who takes care of business. They take care of the people who take care of them, and they want to make sure that everyone around them is having a good time or invested in what's going on, <clears throat> which is along with that abundance mentality. The abundance mentality is is just the craziest thing because – just a quick story. We really, we, when we were first show, throwing, we've had so much trial and error through this. I mean, we came from pretty much nothing. I mean, I'm talking about throwing events in our living room with like one dude in the back going, and <laughs> into what you guys just saw there. Our last event was probably about 70 people at our house, you know, all mixed ages and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's come from that place of abundance from that place of giving. But when we first started out, we didn't fully understand those ideas. We were scared that, um, excuse me. We were scared that, you know, we wouldn't have enough money to put on these cool events or what, how are we going to just be losing out all the time? <clears throat> and so we would throw events and we would charge, you know, $5, $7, $10, whatever what we thought was reasonable. And then there was this kid in our scene who totally changed the game. He said free shows all the time. It blew our minds. We were like, free shows? Like, how are you going to keep the lights on, you know? And uh, that's that scarcity mentality. It's scarce because, like I mentioned earlier, there's those barriers to entry, right? If somebody sees $5 on an event, 
They might not go. It's kind of crazy, but they might not go. But when you throw a free event, everyone and their mom goes. And by the end of the event, if you did it right and you had those win-win relationships, they're basically coming up to you saying, how can I pay you for this experience? I had a great time. I want to give you something back. And so you're opening that door for them to give back to you as well. And that's really what's like important. And, and I've seen my friend who's a mechanic use the same model. And it, it kind of, it, it, I, I was blown away by that too. The abundance mentality really works. You know, he, he, he fixed my car and I said, what do you want for it? He's like, what, just whatever, you know. And it was probably an $800 fix if I would have taken it to the shop. But he said he's making more money he's ever made in his life just charging people whatever they want to pay. And so that's that abundance. Like when you believe in what we're doing, I'm sure the mind, body, and soul hopefully touched on that. And and that's really what it is. Like you have to be in that position mentally to to get to get that back, you know, and, and people are ready to donate and be a part of places like this once you're offering that kind of value. Um, and so just to get into the regenerating the earth aspect of this thing is the sustainability within the city, right? You've probably seen multiple YouTube channels. We're not total masters. We're not total masters of everything that we're doing um, as far as gardening. It's been a lot of trial and error. But these kinds of spaces could be, um, you know, a haven in a food desert in a city. You can grow a lot of food on your spot or you can grow whatever you can and learn through trial and error. And hopefully when you're throwing the music and art events, the people who are hanging out, they start seeing the garden and they start wanting to be a part of that too and wanting to learn about that. So throwing garden days is a really awesome aspect. Um, and having people, having people come out and uh, get, in the, get their hands in the dirt. And you just want to be that flower in the concrete jungle because it's very necessary it's not, it doesn't happen enough. And, you know, there's, there's tons of YouTube videos on it, but uh, you, you really just get in there and do it. If you have one of these spaces, utilize what you have and uh, try, try to build on that. <clears throat> so, you know, try to figure out how, how off grid you can get. You know, Texas just got hit with a really bad winter storm and we were kind of made aware of how lacking we are on a lot of things. You know, electricity, um, you know, when the electricity went out, we had no way to cook. So now we're throwing events. We're trying to build ourselves a cob oven because that's not going to be affected by an electrical storm. You know, you can get solar panels on your house. You can do these things step by step. And it's, it is a step by step process. You don't have to just jump in and all of a sudden be the hero who has like, you know, a small acre of land and you're providing for everything. Even if you have a small garden and you're doing farm to table, that has a huge impact on other people. It has a huge impact on what they think they can do because they see a bunch of, you know, punk rockers, random kids like, well, they have a garden. You know, I could grow a garden and you talk about it. And, and we've we've gotten other people into it and we've gotten a lot of people excited about that kind of stuff. So I'm really happy to be a part of that. And sustainability in the city is super important. There, there are tons of places where you, you know, people are eating gas station food and they're eating, you know, they don't have a car or vehicle to travel. So it's like. You could literally be changing someone's life that way. I would recommend checking out uh, <clears throat> Bonton Farms in, um, in Dallas, if anybody wants to look that up. They have a really cool model where some guy started, took over a really run-down neighborhood, started a garden, and was providing, by the end of it, pr pr producing so much food, they started a restaurant, and then they started buying houses.
houses with that money, allowing homeless people to live there and work on the garden and recycling people out of out of poverty. So the possibilities are truly, truly amazing. And it's going to be different for everyone where they're at and, and what they're they're capable of. But I would recommend even if you know nothing about gardening, just plant something in the ground in the city and then tell somebody about it. And uh, yeah, so this other section, I was supposed to have a PowerPoint, but I didn't get the PowerPoint done. But I wanted to just go over some events that we like to throw. And I want to encourage you guys to steal these events for me. Please throw them at your own cities uh, if you can. Um, so obviously music events, there's, you know, you just book a couple bands and have people over. There's garden days, which is obviously self-explanatory. We're going to get in the garden, get our hands dirty. Maybe you have some volunteers to build a bed. Maybe you just need to get some weeding done. Um, you know, obviously, when I'm saying these events, keep in mind food, music, and art all the time and the sustainable business practices and the abundance mentality. But uh, <clears throat> we've also thought of doing art shows. We almost had a fashion show one time. That was a lot of bells and whistles. I'm pretty sure we're going to pull it off this, <laughs> this time. But there's clothing designers in Houston. Like I said, we're creating our own economy here. So you have to get really creative and think about these niches in your city. There's tons of different interests of people and ways to tap in to those sides of creative people in your communities. So we also have game nights for the video game kids or the poker nights. You know, it's the same thing. Like you just come and play games. In all these events, the barriers are dropping down. We're able to have conversations. We're able to have a little bit of fun while we're doing that. Um, we've done outdoor theaters, um, arts and crafts. We've had skateboarding days, bike rides. One of my favorites is a market. We do a marketplace where it's just a free-for-all garage sale. And like I said, we don't charge. We we got rid of the barriers to entry, so doesn't we don't charge for vendors to come set up. Instead, we're trying to make our own money, but at our own table. You know what I'm saying? So that's that's pretty much how we're able to offer so much um, different people to jump in, whether they make earrings or they, you know, do anything like that. They're participating in an agorist economy when they come to the house and they didn't have a license and they didn't do all that. Um, just to rattle through a few more, we had uh, seed swaps, community meetings, and uh, one of my favorites is the soup event, which is like a live crowdfunding event where you'll have um, everybody pays – a ticket to get in and uh, your pay, your your $5 gets you uh, a vote and it gets you free soup for the uh, duration of the event. And um, when, and we find a couple people from the community who are having ideas of something that could benefit the community directly or they could start their own business. And it's live crowdfunding because you paid that $5 for your ticket, you get some food and also at the end, after you hear those presenters speak, you get to vote on which one you want to give your $5 to. And at the end of the night, whoever gets the most votes gets all that kickstart money to start off their project. And so it's this was started in Detroit, and we've successfully done it a couple times in Houston. It's been a really cool experience. Um, and, yeah, so that's that's pretty much community spaces, community building. I want to encourage everybody, if you're in the city, please, please, please. Think about opening your doors to these possibilities. You are so much more powerful than you think. You have so much more reach than you think. You can connect to way more people than you think. I don't care if you're 100 years old, 20 years old, 30 years old. If you go out and you find the beauty in your city, find the people who are, who are doing things uh, for the love of it. 
find people who are creating something and then provide a space for those people to thrive and provide a space for those people to thrive with an agorist uh, structure, with, with an anarchist structure where there are no barriers to entry and um, everyone else can grow and recycle new people into these ideas in these cities. We need this really badly. We need it really badly to have in many cities an opportunity for the music and art community to become more freedom-minded, truly freedom-minded, and truly not be asking for this government's permission. And we can create, through America, just like punk rock created, a network of houses and cities that are doing something that matters, a network of houses and cities that are building gardens, throwing events, and we're doing it all, you know, under the agorist mentality and the anarchist mentality. So I guess that's all I got today. Yes, a round of applause for Johnny. Thank you to everybody who's listening at home. Uh, so you guys have the House of J Facebook. Where else can people find out about House of J? Uh, yeah, we have a Facebook and an Instagram. It's a House of J HTX. And we're starting a YouTube channel and library. We're trying not to be on YouTube mainly, but we have library and uh, BitChute and all that kind of stuff too. Um, we're going to be uploading kind of like how-tos on events and how-tos on um, all the ins and outs on it. Like I, got, I touched on a lot of ideas today, but we're going to be getting into the ABCs on those videos. And Johnny is here for just a couple days before he heads back to Houston to continue this great work. So please find him, pick his brain. And I saw some of you taking notes. That's awesome. So before we get into the next talk, we actually have a couple of questions from the online audience. We're going to pop on screen for Johnny. This one says, how do we invite slash throw a party if maximum capacity is limited? And I think they mean in terms of COVID. You ignore that. Simple, easy, be free. Don't let the government tell you what to do. And I mean, I think that's a realistic concern, right? Because we've been having, we've been telling people, organize watch parties. And some people who are listening from parts of the world are like, we're not even allowed to gather with two people. Okay. So that, that would be the other aspect I would point out is the location, right? So if you're in a location where there's a bunch of tattletales all around you, or you're in a location where, you know, there's a police station across the street. Yeah. That might end up being a problem. But if you're most big cities are kind of mind your own business, you know, if you get into the right part of it. So not in California, <laughs> I guess not in California. Yes. And and so, I mean, yeah, there, there could be some difficulties with that. But I would encourage people to just take the risk and see what happens, because if we don't push back, then we're not going to find out. So and I would just give it up. For, yeah, I would add to that, as he kind of touched on earlier, the more connected you are to your neighbors in your community, the less likely that is to happen, right? So this is why I talk to neighbors, not the cops. All right, what's the next one? <laughs> we have one more question. Which fruits or veggies are best for easy to begin growing? Obviously, this is going to depend on climate, but what about in Houston? Uh, in Houston, we've had tons of luck with uh, kale and Swiss shards. Those have been the ones that never die. And uh, really... <laughs> peppers yeah oh yeah the peppers grow super well in uh houston but uh yeah i would recommend like if you said like i said earlier just just go online check your area um maybe go to your local garden store and see what's going on you don't have to you're probably not going to be successful the first time you might not be successful the second time but if you have a little bit of success and a lot of perseverance then you can grow into having that community garden because everybody starts small um, you know, just find something that you're interested in. I would highly recommend looking for veggies that are a part of your diet. So if you find something that you already eat, and uh, that's probably the best place to start looking at. 
All right, give it up for Johnny Schaefer, everybody, in the house of Jay. All right. We're off to a good start today. I'm excited. Everybody excited here? Make some noise for the people listening around the world. We hope all of you at home hanging out with your cats and your friends are cheering along with us. We enjoy that. And again, please send your watch party pictures. We will show them on screen if you're following us on Telegram, the Greater Reset Activation, or you can email us at the website. We want to highlight as many watch parties from as many places around the world as possible. So I'm actually the next speaker. I have a short talk that I'm going to give. It's just about 15 minutes long. And uh, who was here or was here or watched online for the first one? I see familiar faces, right? Okay. So last last January, wow, it seems like last year already. In January, we had same themes. We talked about permaculture. Uh, and today is a, permaculture is going to be a big part of what we're talking about. But some of you might have noticed that there was a, I mean, a lot of you noticed. We heard comments and emails from the audience, which is why we're doing this talk. We heard some from some folks in the audience that they wanted to hear more about how do veganism and permaculture go together. Now, our event is not vegan. I'm a vegan. Ramiro's not a vegan. John's not a vegan. You know, but there's a lot of people in the audience who are vegan as well and people who are just interested in how do we have a plant-based permaculture, a plant-based agriculture, right? So most of the speakers who spoke last time um, and some of them who are speaking again today feel strongly or, you know, their view is that you can't have permaculture without animals. And this is kind of a common theme. So I'm going to share some ideas on how that might not be so true, but I, I don't want to frame this as it's like permaculture against veganic permaculture. It's just, these are more ideas and everybody just take the ones that apply to you. So actually last year, Miriam and I, we uh, were permaculture certified now. We got our PDC last year by one of the speakers speaking later today, Penny Livingston. She was one of our permaculture teachers and Stephen Brooks from the last time. Uh, he's in Costa Rica. He was our teacher as well. So we have been certified to, to teach permaculture now. And for me, I'm trying to develop a permaculture curriculum that fits for like our people, our audience. So I'm kind of working on a anarchist slash freedom minded permaculture because it might not seem like it makes a difference. But as Johnny said, when your permaculture teachers are talking about licenses and permits, it's like, eh, I'm not going to do that. I'm just so how do we make it fit to our community? Right. That's kind of what I'm working on. And Again, for me as a vegan, part of that is uh, is important. And we are also uh, going to be moving onto the land pretty soon. I did what Johnny was just describing, lived in the city for all of my life, lived in the downtown Houston area doing house shows, really trying to influence the city. And I think that that's valuable, and I'm glad he's still there doing that, and I hope others do that. But I'm ready now to go to the countryside and to build the, the community that I want and to build an intentional community. And so as a vegan and a permaculture-certified person – I, I'm trying to see how do these things align. And in our community, we've been talking about that. What, are the, what is the role that animals are going to play in our particular community? And this is going to look different in all communities. But for us, what it means is we're not going to slaughter any animals on the land. It's not a like everybody has to be vegan to be a part of the community. That's not really how we're doing it. There are some vegans. There are some who are meat eaters, some who are vegetarian. But the rule that we all settled on is, okay, well, no slaughtering of animals on the property, right? So if you want to go get meat from elsewhere, we're not going to tell you what you can eat in your own home on your own piece of the property, but that's just something we don't want to bring to the land, right? That's kind of where we settled. And so I've been exploring these ideas further and further and trying to understand what does veganic, is what it's called, veganic permaculture look like. So that's what I'm going to talk about just for, for a few moments. And as I said, I just got certified in permaculture last year. I do not claim to be an expert and I'm definitely not an expert on veganic permaculture, but I have some ideas and, and tips that I want to share with you guys. So first, 
is I'm going to assume that there's some folks in the audience either here or online who are totally unfamiliar with permaculture, and everybody after me is going to give you a, a nice lowdown on permaculture and growing your food and everything. But generally speaking, permaculture is a de design philosophy that is about growing food. It's about building communities. It's about human-to-human -human interaction. And specifically, it's a de design philosophy that tries to mimic natural systems. So it tries to mi mimic what you see already happening in nature, to mimic what you see happening in <laughs> happening in, in the natural systems that are around us, right? How do we mimic them? Because nature seems to know what it's doing. Anybody think we need to help nature? Nature, maybe we should geoengineer the weather or we should start messing with the seeds or the plants. Does that sound like a good idea to anybody? Yeah, I didn't think so. It seems like nature has things worked out. So why don't we learn from nature is kind of the permaculture mentality. Let's look at those systems, how they work, and let's try to mimic them as much as possible. Um, and along with permaculture, they talk about Three kind of starting principles, care of humans, fair share, and care of the earth. And I think animals are a part of the earth and included. And what is veganism? A lot of different definitions, again, out there just like for permaculture. But for me, I, I describe it as the practice of abstaining of the use of animal products, particularly in diet. And essentially, it's the view that animals aren't just another commodity to be used to our human ends, right? And there's, there's levels in there, right? There's some vegans who are what you might, these are like the people who throw paint at you, they yell at you, and you know, they're more militant kind of vegans. That's, that's not personally me. I'm okay to sit with you if you're eating meat, but I know people who would get up and walk away from the table and wouldn't sit there with you. It just, that's their, their preference, right? And for me, the reason I came to veganism, it isn't from an ethics standpoint. Originally, it was a health standpoint. After abusing my body a lot in my life, I eventually had to turn vegetarian and veganism for health reasons. But one day I looked at my cat, who was my best friend, and realized it's really only that, that I'm born into this culture that I'm not eating him. If I lived in a different part of the world, he might be my dinner. Somebody else would be eating my best friend. And then I realized, well, I don't want to be eating anybody else's best friend. So maybe I'm eating someone's best friend when I'm eating chicken or a burger or whatever. It, was just, it sounds silly, but that's how it just kind of clicked for me. I was like, yeah, I don't want to eat anybody's best friends. I'm going to just leave the animals alone and be friends with them and work with them. So that's veganism. That's permaculture. How do the two come together? Again, most people think that Animals are absolutely necessary and integral to permaculture, that without animals, you can't have permaculture, particularly when it comes to things like manure, right? Manure is great for the soil. It's great for the plants. And that's going to come from cows or chickens or what have you, right? So how do you think about manure and taking care of the soil and the plants? Can somebody show this businessman some love right here? This, this little businessman. Um, <laughs> and... When you're talking about veganic permaculture, so let's start with the manure, right? Typically, people think you have to have animal manure in order for it to work. Well, some of the suggestions I've seen is that you use plant-based fertilizers, right? So there, there are plant-based fertilizers out there that are chemical-free, that are toxin-free, but they're not coming from animal manure. Uh, they're coming from you know, alternatives. And I will say I've seen a few veganic permaculture farmers that do use animal manure, and I thought this was an interesting idea. So again, there's a spectrum. Some veganic permaculture culturists will say, we don't use any animal products at all. We use all plant-based fertilizers, right? But there are others who say, we're going to use animal manure, but we're only going to get it from animal rescues and from animal sanctuaries, right? Not from animals that have been farmed and have been exploited, right? So there's a difference between like you're getting, at least as a vegan, there's a difference between getting manure from a cow that's had this horrible, crappy, abusive life because you're participating in that chain. Whether You might be like, hey, I didn't abuse the animal, but you took the manure from the animal and then you're using that and bringing that to your property. I think you're still playing a role in that supply chain. Whereas you could say, 
Uh, there's this guy named Jonathan. He's got a really awesome, I think it's just called Veganic Permaculture. He's only on YouTube at the moment, um, where he talks about how he only uses manure from rescues and from sanctuaries because he wants to make sure if he is going to use animal manure, it's coming from places that are animals are being treated right. They're being taken care of and they're being respected. And I think that's a cool idea. So again, this would involve permaculture with no animals or byproducts. Again, this is a spectrum. In our community, um, I can get, share an experience. My grandmother has a farm in Kentucky. She's grown up on farms, lived on farms her whole life, been growing all her food, taught me so much about food preservation. She has cows. She has chickens. And I spent a couple summers on her farm, you know, and I, she's like, I need you to go do farm chores. So I'm going out there and I'm like picking up eggs and I, I don't really eat eggs as a vegan. But I really had some time to connect to the animals. And it, it was a lesson for me as well, because the fact of the matter is that these chickens are going to lay their eggs regardless. You can build a coop for them if you want, and they'll go in there because they know that they're protected. If you don't build it, they're going to go hide up in the trees because they're trying to get away from predators. So their natural instinct is to hide and to go up into somewhere where they're safe. So if you build something for them, they'll go in there and they'll be safe. If you don't build it, they're going to go up in the trees. My point is that with or without human intervention, the chickens will lay the eggs. So then when I was on my grandma's farm and I, my chore was to go pick these eggs from the chickens, I would go into the little house and I would take the, the eggs and then bring them to my grandma. But I told her, I'm like, grandma, some of these chickens, they're sitting on the eggs. And when I try to grab it, they peck at me. They don't want me. And it's like, dude, she doesn't want me to take her egg. I'm not going to take it. So I just, I'm like, sorry if I don't get all of them. But if the, if the chicken's like not happy with me, she's sending a message to me saying like, even if it's not going to hatch like she probably wants it to and thinks it's going to, I'm going to wait for her to realize that. And, and that's just my personal standpoint. I felt like, okay, well, look, this, this, these other chickens, they left their eggs. They don't want them. I'll bring them to my grandma. And if I was going to eat eggs, that would be the only situation I would eat eggs. In a farm where I can see the animals running around freely taken care of. And there are other vegans who would still say, no, I'm not going to participate. And that's just a spectrum. On our land, we do want to use animals and well, I don't want to say use. We want to live with them. We want them to be integrated into our systems, which is a part of permaculture. But we want to reduce the suffering. Miriam and I want to create like an animal sanctuary. We want to have an animal rescue. We have rats and we want to rescue rats. I know it's kind of weird to some of you. We want to rescue all kinds of animals and we, we want to live with them and work with them. And they can play a role in the systems. But I think it really is about the way that you approach it. And I like that idea of using manure from places where animals are being well taken care of. Again, a veganic Permaculture method includes no artificial poisons or synthetic chemicals. And then I thought this, this suggestion was interesting. The idea that, you know, because some people will say, well, you need animals. Animals are helpful, like especially here in Mexico, donkeys. They can help haul things. And like, you know, there's, there's a use, a practical use for animals that humans have evolved with. Um, so one veganic permaculturist that I found, they were suggesting that you replace animals with, as they describe it, traction, with, animals with uh, and their traction force with um, systems, food system designs that require minimal, that you basically, that you don't need the animals to drag things around. Create the food systems in a better way where they work for the humans as well as the animals. Because that's what permaculture really is about. You know, it, it is, a lot of people think, and I, I'll say even I thought before learning more, that it's just about growing food. But it's so much more than that. It's about designing our lives. It's about the way we interact with each other. It's about the way we interact with the environment, with the plants, with the water, with all the natural food systems. With all the natural food systems, like how does that really work and how do we rethink the traditional systems, right? Because I don't think anybody here, regardless of diet, thinks that the current food systems around the world are working. Does anybody feel like there's not room for improvement? 
I mean, whatever your diet, I think we can all see like animals are being exploited. Animals are like the waste that comes from these food systems, whether vegan or meat eater is just insane and it's poisoning the earth. I mean, these are things we need to be able to acknowledge. And unfortunately, topics like this, veganism, diet and permaculture are have become really, really divisive. And we want to, that's why I wanted to do this talk because last time we had some people who felt very strongly about like animals are necessary. We also had Dr. Will Tuttle speak and we were thankful he participated. He came from his really strong vegan perspective and we want to just kind of balance that out that you can do permaculture and you can do it in a way that doesn't require the use of animals. Um, that's where I'm going to leave it today, guys. I do want to encourage you to go deeper into this topic. For those of you who are following the Greater Reset Activation Telegram channel, as soon as I end this, I'm going to go post five different websites that I've found that can give more details. And it's also farmers who are actually doing this. This is not just theory. There's are farmers who've been farming without animals for 25 plus years, and they've got beautiful food for us. So you can make veganic food for us, and you can do veganic permaculture. All right, guys. Thank you for, for your time for that. All right, I think we're ready for Marjorie Wildcraft now. Let's see if we can get John back on screen if he wants to introduce her. Marjorie spoke last time. Did anybody get to hear her last time? Anybody checked out her grow, grow, the Grow Network? It's a really great resource for plugging into other permaculture-minded folks. Let's see if we're ready for her. Are we ready for her? All right, we're going to take a real quick break, and then we'll be back in just a moment and continue the show. Thank you guys for being here for day two of the Greater Reset Activation. We'll be right back. In 2021, the free hearts and minds of the world are standing together in celebration of freedom and community. The people are waking and organizing. The people are recognizing their own power. The people of the world are uniting against the Great Reset. The people are celebrating the Greater Reset. From May 24th to 28th, join us as we gather online and in person for the Greater Reset. From activation to expansion. Over five days, we will focus on practical solutions for the most pressing issues of our time. Over 30 world-class speakers will share ideas in five different themes. May 24th, Mind, Body, and Soul. May 25th, Regenerate the Earth. May 26th, The Counter-Economy. May 27th, Liberating Technology. May 28th, Community and Relationships. Don't miss out on the next step in the Greater Reset. It's time to get activated. This is our world, our way.
All right, all right, all right. Let's continue. Oh, let's continue today with Regenerate the Earth. We're waiting on Marjorie Wildcraft in just a moment. We're still waiting to hear from Curtis Stone, the urban farmer. Anybody followed Curtis's work over the years? This is a guy who's been building beautiful farms, and like many people the last year, he started to wake up. And we also got Penny Livingston coming on. You, you there, John? Can you hear us? We can hear you. Can you guys hear me? Yep. All right. Hey, there goes Ernie. Hey, um, so we're having some connection issues, but if you guys can hear me now, then that's great. I just wanted to thank Derek for that great talk. I'm not a vegan myself, but I really appreciate the perspective and, and honoring um, and seeing other life forms as our friends. It definitely had me reflecting because who knows what culture you're born in. Things are different for different folks. But I want to encourage folks that want to get going with gardening and permaculture uh, to join the Freedom Cell Network, freedomcells.org. It's a great, wonderful space where people can find others that are also interested in similar things. They can connect and they can get their hands dirty. And like Johnny was saying, it's a great low-pressure, low really simple way to, to break the ice. Because everyone unites around food. It's not controversial. There's nothing to argue about. It's just, hey, let's break some bread together. Let's get our hands dirty. So for folks that are looking for some first beginner steps that they can take in their lives in order to implement some of this stuff, in order to activate, check out freedomcells.org. There's a lot of different groups on Telegram as well. And from there, you can find groups in your area. There's a great story from Lisa Bowman. She is a very active Freedom Cell organizer in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And she got together with her local group and they managed to build a giant garden on the side of her house in one evening, about three or four hours. And then they broke bread with one another. They relaxed. They had some drinks. And she said if it was her on her own doing that, then it would have taken three or four days. So again, one of the most simple yet effective things we can do in order to reclaim our sovereignty is to start growing food. Uh, it's not illegal. It's not controversial. It's absolutely cru crucial and critical. We experienced this huge snowstorm here in central Texas and grocery stores were delayed. We've been stocking up on food for quite some time and didn't think that we would have to tap into our food storage supply and then COVID comes along and the supply chain gets disrupted. Everything gets locked down. Everyone's in a frenzy. There's lines at the grocery stores. So there's no better time to start growing food now. We're going to be hearing from Christian Westbrook here in a little while, Penny Livingston, and also Curtis Stone. I think we're having trouble getting Marjorie at the moment, but I just wanted to throw that out there again for folks that are interested in growing food, interested in doing the permaculture, it's a lot easier to do it with other people. And a great way to get started in community building, as Johnny pointed out, what they did there in Houston is through gardening, is through permaculture. So we invite you to join us in the Freedom Cell Network, freedomcells.org, and use growing food and gardening as an excuse to get out there, get your hands dirty, and meet some people. All right, I'm going to kick it back to you guys there in uh, Mexico, Mexico.
Org. Uh, I, I do want to echo that because for those who aren't familiar, this whole production is from the Freedom Cells Network. The reason we initially started to do this, I'm sure John and I have told this story already, but last September, fall, you know, as I started writing about the Great Reset in June when they first announced it, and like many of us, we've been paying attention to what's going on and really watching it closely. But we started to think, as we were seeing an explosion of people joining on the Freedom Cell Network, because finally after John's been talking about it since 2014, I've been talking about it since 2016, people are finally ready to get organized. People are like, oh, the world's burning. Maybe it's time for us to actually take some, some of our lives into our own hands, which is a good thing, and I'm thankful for that. And that's led to, as he said, more than 22,000 people joining the website from around the world. And many of you are in Telegram. If you're only on Telegram, I encourage you to join the website as well because you're going to find more people on the website than you will on Telegram and you know, vice versa, join both. But you'll find Telegram cells and online freedom cells. Use the map to search and find people. And basically last fall, we started thinking, what can we do to really tap into this momentum? You know, I've been investigating the people, the World Economic Forum and others behind the Great Reset, and there are literally trillions of dollars invested. It's a marketing campaign to transform the world is what it really comes down to. And there are trillions of dollars invested into this. I don't think we can stop this trillions of dollars investment. The best, I believe, personally, we can do is to shape it, to direct it, and to play a role in which direction it goes. We can either passively just sit back and like, oh no, Klaus Schwab, James Bond villain and scary people and Bill Gates and all this stuff, but I'm just gonna stay home and post on social media about it. Or I'm just gonna stay home and be afraid. But if you do that, you will end up trapped in their vision of the future. This you all nothing and you'll be happy future that many of us have seen they're prepping us for. I refuse to do that. Anybody else refuse to accept the great reset? Yeah, yeah I thought so. So then if we're going to refuse their vision, then we need to create our own vision. We need to tap into what does the world of the future look like to the beautiful free hearts and minds here and around the world. I know for me that looks like permaculture. It looks like healing my body, mind, and soul. It looks like getting out of their financial system, their financial traps. It looks like building community and building you know, on the land and, and using technology in a way that can liberate and can free us instead of enslave us. And that's what we're trying to focus on here. So John and I just really started talking about that. What does a people's reset or the greater reset look like? And anybody had the experience yet? You try to share this and your friends are like, why are you supporting the great reset? They don't really read it. They're just rushing through it too quick. Or next time, just capitalize ER, I guess. But I've, we've had that happen a lot. We share it and people are like, wait, you guys are supporting the great reset? What's wrong here? No, we're the exact opposite. We are the answer to the great reset, right? The people are the answer to the great reset. So I just want to invite you guys to really think about that. Again, we, we call it an activation, and you're going to hear us say this more than once this week. We call it an activation because this is not an event. It's not a conference. It's not a festival. It literally is an activation. We're trying to activate everybody here that's attending in person, activate the beautiful young ones, and activate you know, everybody tuned in around the world. Like Johnny was saying earlier, this message and these ideas, they reach people of all ages. You know, I, it, there's, a, there's a lot of age groups and nationalities and backgrounds just in the room we're here. And I'm sure in Texas and elsewhere around the world. And that to me is a beautiful thing. The fact that we can raise money from the support of everybody else to get translations. And it's still a work in progress. But, this, you know, this is what we're aiming for. So we can reach more people. We have we got a, a flyer translated into Hindi from our friends in India because we want to reach them. Right. Spanish is just the first step. French. German, Dutch, this is just the beginning, guys. We're going to keep doing these events until either none of you care anymore or until we've changed the world. That's kind of, we're not going to stop. So please continue to support however you can. Thank you. And uh, 
Ramiro, let's roll a quick music break, quick break real quick, and then I'm going to jump back. We'll see. I think we're going to either have Marjorie or if Christian Ice Age Farmer is willing to, he might jump on early today and, and speak to you guys. So either way, you got a good speaker coming up next. So please stay tuned. We're going to play a quick break, and we'll be right back. Thank you guys again. This is Regenerate the Earth for the Greater Reset Activation. In 2021, the free hearts and minds of the world are standing together in celebration of freedom and community. The people are waking and organizing. The people are recognizing their own power. The people of the world are uniting against the Great Reset. The people are celebrating the Greater Reset. From May 24th to 28th, join us as we gather online and in person for the Greater Reset. From activation to expansion. Over five days, we will focus on practical solutions for the most pressing issues of our time. Over 30 world-class speakers will share ideas in five different themes. May 24th, Mind, Body, and Soul. May 25th, Regenerate the Earth. May 26th, The Counter-Economy. May 27th, Liberating Technology. May 28th, Community and Relationships. Don't miss out on the next step in the Greater Reset. It's time to get activated. This is our world, our way. like to send a special thanks to Inescale. With over 15 years of experience in data management and hosting, Inescale delivers innovative and reliable cloud hosting and cloud servers for your personal or business needs. Here at The Greater Reset, we trusted Inescale with the hosting of our site and they helped us to handle over 150,000 visits during our last stream. No matter how big or small, you can trust Inescale with your hosting needs. More information at Inoscale.net. Take a moment to thank our sponsors who helped make this event possible. Bitcoin.com, your one-stop shop for all things crypto. Whether you want to get your first wallet, buy or sell the hottest altcoins, or stay up to date on breaking crypto news, Bitcoin.com has you covered.
Oh, really? Oh, thank you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> hey, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this um, this a stream that we're doing. We are really doing some really solid work here, having a little bit of issues here locally, but they're holding it down in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. And uh, we're going to be bringing up Christian Westbrook here in a moment, but I thought I would just give a shout out to some of our sponsors. Uh, we just heard about InnoScale and Bitcoin.com. I'd also like to thank healthviafood.org. Healthviafood.org, you can go to that website. And uh, Ben, the proprietor of the site, actually created a free report that you can check out. It's all about how important and integral food is when it comes to your overall health, right? We've all heard you are what you eat. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. So I, I strongly encourage you to go to healthviafood.org. That's healthviafood.org and download the free report. Just pop in your email and he'll shoot it over. And after you do that, you'll be able to see a wealth of information all over that. We have a handful, a small handful of sponsors, all like-minded, vetted companies and organizations that are supporting our work here and, and making this possible. So shout outs to Ben at healthviafood.org. Um, you know, what, what Derek was saying, I think is really important because we have the opportunity. There's the website right there. Yeah, you can scroll through all sorts of different information. It really is a wealth of information, a great collection. And whenever you support these sites, you're also supporting the Greater Reset because they are supporting our work. And it's up to each and every one of us to play an active role in the future that we want to live in. So many people are in this passive modality where they feel content and comfortable simply talking about stuff and sharing about stuff. I don't know what it is, but I just get triggered because I've, I've migrated away from Facebook. I'm still on Facebook, but I spend most of my time on Telegram. That's where you'll find the Greater Reset chat, the Greater Reset channel. A lot of our Freedom Cells organizing goes on on Telegram. But there's still so many people that just want to forward articles and videos and little memes all day. And I get it. I get it. It's, it's an easy thing to do. And I think people feel as though they're contributing perhaps when they just click that little forward and then they go blast it on every single channel that they're on. But I just really want to encourage folks to take stock in how they spend their time. We do have limited time in this body, at least, in this particular reality. And if you are like me, you're concerned with the way things are going and the way things have been. But this nightmarish future, this dystopian vision of a reality that the World Economic Forum is putting forward, right? Derek re referenced it earlier. They had this article on the World Economic Forum website. It's gone now. They took it down because it got so much backlash, but it's still up on Forbes. It was the same article on Forbes, and the title's like, the year is 2030. You'll own nothing. You'll have no privacy, and you'll, you couldn't be happier. It really is this nightmarish future. Uh, it's a dystopian right out of a movie, right, like a Philip K. Dick movie or something. And I don't want that for me. I don't want that for my children. So let's just try to recognize that we have the power and the ability 
to change the course of history, it's always like a small group of people and really wild-eyed, crazy individuals that change things, right? We don't need the masses to come along with us. The masses that the most, the, the highest number of people, the big lot of people, they believe what they see on TV. They're content just to be employed and come home and relax with their family, watch some sports, you know, more, more power to them. Maybe that's more of a peaceful, serene life, right? But the masses don't change the course of history. It's folks like us that change the course of history. And on the flip side, the Klaus Schwab's and the Rockefeller's and the Bill Gates, they are actively working very hard to change the course of history. And it, in many ways, they are ahead of the curve. But there are more of us than there are of them. And I alluded to this earlier, our message and our activism and what it is that we're trying to create is more in line with nature, with harmony. Derek said permaculture is like just mimicking nature and letting nature do its thing. Well, let's, let's get back to that. And that's what we have. We also have the truth on our side. If you recognize a lot of these New World Order types and these cabalists, they have to use deception and they have to use manipulation in order to push their agenda forward. We don't have to do any of that. We just have to speak truth to power, right? So I want to invite each and every one of you to try to cultivate a, a mindfulness and a consciousness of how you spend your energy, how you engage with your fellow human beings what it is that you're, you're building, right? It was so great to start off with Joe Martino and then Sayer G backed him up with a lot of the same message. It's like, just try to be conscious of how we show up in the world. Because if we show up from a space of reaction or victimhood, then that's the reality that we are going to perpetuate. But if we show up from a place of empowerment and just, just vibing, right? Like, for the folks doing the watch parties, we'll show some images of the watch parties later. Saw a huge watch party with multiple tables. Everyone's hanging out, having a good time. We got a great crowd here in Buda, Texas. Huge crowd there in Zihuatanejo. And when you are around people and you have that connection and that energy, you just, you just soak it up and let it fuel you, right? We're doing the People's Reset Contest. I believe you can still put your entries in. You go to thegreaterreset.org click on programs and just watching some of those videos and hearing some of those stories of how people have been inspired by this event, by this movement, it really just fuels my fire. So again, I, I want to encourage you guys to cultivate a consciousness of how you're spending your time and really, really hone in and focus and spend more time on those things that light your fire, right? And try to limit those things that are jamming you up or bringing you down or causing tension in your shoulders and in your body and in your stomach, you can, you can tune into that and you can create a life that you desire, right? And so we have all these different themes and in each one of the different themes, we're going to be talking about concrete actions, actions and steps that you can take in your life. But I want to remind people that it really starts with a mindset of empowerment, of believing in yourself, believing in your fellow human beings. And even though, we may be, it may seem like we're facing insurmountable odds all throughout the course of history. You know, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. 
I, I like to examine history as a struggle between freedom and control, between decentralization and centralization of power, between the rebel alliance and the empire, right? And, and we can choose to play an active role in that struggle. But it actually doesn't have to be a struggle. And that's the cool thing about the message that we're trying to convey here. It's not a fight. It's not a let's go show up at a, at a government building and scream at a wall. It's let's get together with like-minded humans and let's do some cool stuff and build some cool things. And that's what we're inviting you guys to do here. All right. I see Derek there. What do we got going, Derek? We have the next speaker. We do. We have Marjorie ready to go. So we're going right. to Marjorie Wildcraft. You want to go ahead and just introduce her, John? We'll put her on screen. Oh, I'll do it. All right. Let's bring on Marjorie Wildcraft of the Grow Network. Hey, everyone. How are you doing? I heard Derek's presentation, and I can definitely appreciate a whole attitude toward veganism. John, are you there? Can you guys hear me? John, are you there? Marjorie, we're ready for you. You can go ahead and start. Oh, okay. Can you guys hear me? Yep, we can hear you just fine. Awesome. Well, I just wanted to say how much I appreciated Derek's sentiment um, for uh, a permaculture veganism. Um, and that was actually how I started out as a raw vegan, believe it or not. Uh, and I was living in Central Texas and homesteading there and looking to grow food there. I've been um, aware that we would go through so many changes for more than two, two decades now. So 2008 didn't surprise me. And I was actually really glad I had completely dismantled a very successful real estate business prior to the 2008 era. Um, and, um, you know, I really appreciate the conversation about veganism and not really wanting to have animals. Uh, and I just want to address that for a minute. But um, the bottom line is animal products by far are easier to produce. They produce more calories. Uh, they also often produce more nutritionally dense foods. And um, the period that we're headed into, and you'll hear from that with Christian Westbrook, um, it's going to be some really difficult times. So um, a plant-based diet is... Uh, I, I admire the folks who are going for it, and I'm, I love to watch them. I honestly um, found that that wasn't going to work while I was trying to homeschool my kids, be involved in my community, build a business, and do all the other things that you that, that time requires. So I just want to take a quick second to let people know. Some people are like, well, what can I do? Like, you know, if I start growing my own food, am I going to become a like a migrant worker or something? Um, no. Uh, I've developed a system uh, where you can, it's a three-part system, very simple, where in about an hour a day, and that's an average. Uh, by the way, I live in um, Puerto Rico, and this place is, is kind of noisy. So um, also the internet is a little bit intermittent, so welcome to the future. <laughs> anyway, it's a very simple three-part system with a 100-square-foot garden, um, a flock of six laying hens and a small rabbitry with one buck and three breeding does. And from that, you can produce about 365,000 calories in most of your temperate zones. And I'll use the United States as a base. I know we have a worldwide audience, uh, but that would be assuming like, you know, two growing seasons. Um, 
And that's, that's very significant. It takes about an hour a day. And actually the way I work it is on the weekends, I'll work, you know, two or three hours. And then during the week when you're super busy, you're only doing five or 10 minutes. Um, a typical garden and you're going to want to focus on calorie crops, uh, more like potatoes or sweet potatoes. Uh, you know, really the calorie is going to become, um, the currency of the future. And I don't mean that far out. I'm talking like six months to a year. Uh, if you've looked at the charts that they overlay of the M1 money supply printing and then what they did in Weimar, Germany, we're, we're right on track. <laughs> you know, it's, it's happening. Uh, I also really want to encourage you to get started right away. This is uh, learning to grow your food does take some time. Um, and, uh, you know, I really want to encourage you to get started right away. People say, how should I get started? Um, if you live and it's the perfect timing to start a garden, which let's see right now, um, it's really probably not the perfect time in most places. Uh, I would recommend start with, with chickens first because you can build the coop, get the watering and the feeding systems in place, buy some laying hens, you know, within a few weeks, start having egg production and um, you'll feel good. You'll have food coming in. You'll start learning how to take care of those chickens. And then you can work on the next system in the three component system uh, in the Northern hemisphere in the colder climates, the best time to start gardening. Actually, you know, now could be good uh, for, for the far Northern parts in places like Texas, where we're really not planting anymore. It's just getting too hot. Um, the the other component again is going to be rabbits, and I know there's a you know nobody who nobody wants to 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 process a rabbit. Nobody ever wants to process anything. Um, uh, and, but again, there's a real bulk of calories, and and this is not just um, it's not really just about calories. I do have a really good relationship with all of my animals. And even the ones that we are we are going to eat, and that's a difficult thing, and it requires a level of maturity that is not common in our um, our populace. By the way, I wrote a book called The Grow System, um, and this includes the uh, the three part system in there. Shows you exactly the dimensions you need for a um, uh, the the rabbit hutch and and um, and the chickens and the and the gardens. With a garden, a lot of people are often thinking. I'm going to need a huge garden. And I really don't recommend that. I really recommend you start small, a hundred square feet at the most. And what I like to do is divide it into two raised beds of 50 square feet each. So that would be like four and a half feet wide by 12 feet long, something like that. And uh, you actually in two growing seasons can produce a huge amount of vegetables in that kind of space. The reason I like raised bed gardens is probably you don't have good soil almost nobody does. And uh, so put it in that raised bed and understand that that's where your really good soil is. Um, you're going to want that about 16 inches deep. Just buy the best soil you possibly can uh, and, and fill those beds up with it. Now you absolutely can grow soil. Uh, when I lived in Texas, uh, we had nothing but sand when I started. And when we left, we had beautiful soil and lush pastures and fruit trees that took 15 years we don't have 15 years <laughs> so um if i had to say what is the secret to a green thumb 
I would say the quality of your soil, people really underestimate. A lot of people think, oh, it's just dirt. Like, you know, like I don't want my kids tracking it in the door. Um, it's, it's a home, it's like your gut system. It's a whole microbiome full of living organisms that, you know, uh, break down minerals. Plants don't just eat rocks. Uh, they normally need uh, those minerals to come in, in different uh, forms of acids or different uh, forms of solvents that actually um, bacteria and microorganisms perform that function for the plants. And there's this whole synergy relationship. What the plants do is create carbohydrates. Uh, carbohydrate is hydrate, water, uh, carbon, and then um, you know oxygen from the air, carbon dioxide and water. That's what plants use and they make carbohydrates and they outgas oxygen. And what they do with these carbohydrates is they build their own walls and structures. That's what they make their fruits out of. Um, and then they also excrete some of those carbohydrates and basically a form of sugar to the microbes in the soil and feed those microbes in the soil. And those microbes in the soil in return get minerals and nutrients that the plant needs in order to continue doing its process. So there's so much going on in the soil and I want you to really honor your soil. And if I had one tip, you know, people, hey, everything I've ever grown has died get really good living soil and you're going to want to constantly be feeding that with uh, making compost and, and taking care of it. Um, I, I don't know what, uh, I, how much more time we have. I know uh, Christian is up next. Uh, I, I've been watching this um, thing. I remember talking to John Bush years ago. Actually, we were on a podcast together. And I was like, John, can you explain this agenda 21 to me? And, Back then, it seemed so far out and so weird and like, oh, my God, the, like the conspiracy theory of all conspiracy theories, like uber fringe. And now it is unfolding in front of our very eyes. And this is a real thing. It's happening. I know we wake up every morning and the sun rises and, you know, there hasn't really, you know, you know, the, the, the COVID experience happened. But you know, most people are like, well, you know, we're all getting back to normal. Please do not mistake that we are in. We are just getting our toes and our ankles into a massive change, and the biggest issue that you're going to have is going to be feeding yourself. Uh, so, uh, what I can offer is this Grow Half program, and then all the resources of the Grow Network, where we have a whole forum full of people that are really experienced that love to help out newcomers, and. Um, um, the Grow Half system. If you want to pick up the book, that's great. And if you want to go get a free video on it, just go to growhalf.com. Uh, by the way, if you go to the forums and you you tag me, I read all the comments and respond to a lot of them. And I would love to get connected with you. Um, really appreciate this community because um, we, we need to have a voice in the creation of the future and not just have it be dictated to us by uh, the, the forces that are out there doing it. John, I didn't want to step onto Christian's time, and I knew that he is scheduled for now. So um. there we go. Hey, uh, hey, Marjorie, can you hear me? Yeah. How are you? I'm doing good. 
<laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your perspective. Didn't you just do a virtual summit or didn't that start or can people still access that content? Oh, you know, we're going to have a replay for that. Yeah, if they want to head over there, it's thegrowsystemsummit.com. We'll have a replay, I think, in about a weekend where we have a whole bunch of great speakers on gardening and gardening with kids and soil microbiology and um, chickens and, and making medicine. Doc Jones and I actually made tinctures and stuff like that. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, you've really done it all. Uh, I'm going to see if there's any questions here in the audience. We have about 10 minutes before Christian comes in, but uh, okay. while I recruit some some questions over here, maybe you could share with us what you, because you, you kind of cover the whole gamut of preparedness, right? And you're really aware of a lot of financial calamities that we're facing as well. And, you know, nowadays it's not that it's going to happen in the future. It's like, wow, we're here with the supply it's, chain issues and the inflation and everything. It's crazy. It's it's happening. It, it really is. Uh, it, it's like it's, you know, to some extent, it's almost like hard to believe because, well, you and I have been talking about this for years and now those, all those plans are really being unfolded. Uh, and really, from all my years of like interviewing collapse survivors, I went to Cuba to interview them, a lot of them. Uh, Fernando Aguirre, who survived the Argentinian collapse, uh, elders who had actually been through World War II in France, um, you, um, reading a lot of historical stuff, Weimar Germany, there's uh, places that have been hit by civil war. The biggest thing that all these different survivors talk about is being hungry. And that is the number one issue. Uh, so um, regardless of how you do it and whatever your ideals are, I don't care. Just get started. Yeah. And it's something it's strange because it's something that's out of most people's control, but it's something that you can easily control. It's like a low hanging fruit. It, it really is. Yeah. And some people some people are so intimidated by it because we ha it's not a part of our common experience, but it really is something you can do and do fairly easily. Yeah, you're going to have some mistakes and some things will go wrong. That's partly what the Grow Network is all about. It's a community of people that can help you really uh, stay focused. And that's actually why I have built most of the things that we've built at the Grow Network is to help beginners get started right away because we knew this crisis was coming. <laughs> Yep. All right. Well, we have a question here from the audience. Feel introduce yourself and then ask your question for Marjorie. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marjorie. I'm Meredith mm -hmm. Nile, and I just had a quick question for growing in the city. Um, they're trying to make laws now about even growing anything in our backyard, which obviously is not going to be something that we're going to be paying attention to. But there's a curiosity about just even like drones, like and even just the weather changes. Are you seeing more doing greenhouses? And um, what is your advice for growing in the city? And then particularly... What about squirrels? That seems to be a big issue lately. So thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, I see squirrels as a food source. Um, you know, a BB gun <laughs> doesn't take that long to get accuracy with it. It's quiet. Nobody's going to, you're not going to get in trouble like you would if you shot a 22 or something in the city. Now, I know that the issue has come up a lot about, um, you know, laws. I have not yet had a, I, I appreciate you mentioning that, but I have not yet gotten a lot of feedback that they're trying to make it illegal or difficult to grow food. I mean, I've been watching everybody else get deplatformed. Like, my God, you know, all the, what is it, the Dirty Dozen or something like that, Mercola and all these amazing people are, are getting shut down. Um, but they so far have not yet messed with um, 
you know, sites that focus on homesteading and backyard food production. There has been some disruption with, with people in their yards, but for the most part, what I see, it's sort of like a random, you know, just one-off incident. So if you hear of more, I would like to know about it to know if that really is a trend. In the city, yeah, it's going to be a little bit tough. Honestly, what we're facing, you want to get out of the city. I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, right, um, I was dealing with uh, different producers and media in New York City, and, and I'm like, you guys, you have no idea what's coming, and it's coming fast. You need to get out of the cities. Uh, it, it, like, I'm, you know, if that's not at all possible for you, then, you know, do the things like try to get involved with the community garden, try to do the rooftop stuff, try to do the grow light stuff that's in your apartment, um, you know, your balconies. Um, I'm, I'm actually about to start experiment with raising quail in my house just to do that as a, um, you know, you're talking about a source of meat and eggs there. Then you can also ferment or grow different greens to give them for foods. Um and I, I am a huge believer that when you say, I want to grow food and I'm in this situation and you open your heart up and you ask the universe, then the universe will deliver and bring you results and resources and, and, and guide you in ways that you had never thought possible before. Excellent. All right. I think we have another question. One thing, too, if like if you're anywhere near me and your local municipality outlaws growing food, then I'll be right there with you with our hand. You know, that's where it's like, come and take it. And it's not a cannon. It's some carrots. Right. So that there's like Mexico had an agrarian revolution where the farmers rose up against the aristocrat class. So I wouldn't be too concerned with that, honestly, especially in a place like Texas. And again, we all ought to be moving out of the cities. That's where this technocracy is going to be rolled out most successfully. So we're getting property out in Bastrop. I know Marjorie used to live there in Red Rock. So if anybody yeah. lives in, in Austin, we invite you to come join us on the outskirts. We can still come into town to the Inspired Minds Art Center, but we can also grow food and build community. We have another question for you, Marjorie, and then I think we're getting pretty close to sure. Christian's slot here. Come on up. Christian is so awesome. I can't wait to hear Christian. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, so good. So I'm Cynthia, and my question is, what can we do if it's so hot? Like, I'm in Texas. I don't know when I can Mm -hmm. start to plant. Uh, I Mm -hmm. tried one pot. It's already died. (laughs) Yeah. uh, (laughs) It was a green bean. Didn't go out very well. It's okay. Uh, And I'm also in between here in Arizona, and it's very, very deserty in Arizona. Do you have on your site or in your book particular like climate sections for like what we can do for particular places in the book i do not but on our website we do and actually that's another program that i'm just in the process of getting coded up is how we can divide people into different bioregions so that way i can connect you up with everybody else in the planet that's growing in that kind of a hot desert region so you can share information uh what i will say about um um growing in the heat so from my interviews of all the older Texans, I said, what were you guys planting in June? And most of them said, we're putting our gardens to bed and we're not doing anything because it's just too hot out there. Right? <laughs> like That's stupid to be out there. And I'm like, okay, I get it. But you know, what would you do if you had to survive? And they're like, well, uh, cow peas handle the heat really well. Um, sweet potatoes actually are one of the wonderful calorie crops for that region. They grow through the summertime there. They don't need a lot of water and they do um, produce a lot of calories uh, and okra 
uh, is another vegetable that just really seems to enjoy the heat. There are alternatives. And then there's lots of other foods, um, especially you talked about Arizona, like mesquite beans are an amazing uh, calorie crop. Uh, there's acorns. There's a lot of other foods around you that you uh, may not be aware of. But when again, when you begin to open your perspective uh, and look into it, you go, wow, there, there's a lot more around me than I had no prickly pear, um, both the tunas and the pads itself. There's lots of different edible cactuses. Uh, so there are options. Uh, it's just a matter of learning them and, um, and, and doing it. And definitely we are working to, as I said, uh, create a program where we help connect up different people that live in the same regions across the entire planet. Cause you know, people in uh, Northern Africa have the exact same growing conditions or have the same problems and, you can share all, all sorts of ideas. It's a, I know that in our news, if it bleeds, it leads, and all the headlines look terrible. But really, humans are one of the most unbelievably cooperative species on the planet. I mean, if you think about what it takes to make like a device like this, it's unbelievable levels of cooperation and thought and sharing. So um, that's what the Grow Network platform was created for, was to be able to allow that. Thank you so much, Marjorie, for sharing your time with us. We always appreciate your perspective and your website's thegrownetwork.org, correct? Uh, thegrownetwork.org.com and .net. Just come visit us, The Grow Network. <laughs> nice. I wish we did that with the Freedom Cells website. There's dummy website, fake websites. Yeah, you can just go in that search bar, and there's so many articles. It's a wealth of knowledge there. So we always appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective. Thank you, Marjorie. Yeah, thank you, John. It's been such a great relationship over the years. Thank you. To the future. Okay, great. Uh, that was Marjorie Wildcraft, ladies and gentlemen. Woo, give it up. Woo. Okay, we're super excited to bring our next presenter. We're keeping it going with the theme of Regenerate the Earth and... This next guy has a wealth of knowledge as well. And one similarity between him and Marjorie, when you do interviews with him, you can often hear the roosters in the background. That's how you know they're the real deal. So uh, our next speaker is Christian Westbrook, the Ice Age farmer who really can break down some complex issues that we're facing and convey them in a way that helps us to understand not only what is really taking place, but how important it is that we take action in response to this crazy stuff. So let's welcome our next speaker, Christian Westbrook, the Ice Age Farmer. Well, thank you all very much. What an honor it is to be back here at The Great Reset. I'm really thrilled to be asked back. Um, I warned Derek that I wanted to do something a little bit different. I don't want to talk about the issues that John was just mentioning today. You know, we did a little bit of that last time, and then we talked about some solutions. But there was one line in my last talk that I heard about more than anything else. A lot of people picked up on that. And the line was, the, the great reset happens in the heart. And so today, I really want to focus on that. Because I think I could talk about, certainly I could talk about the problems all day long, and I do. We could talk about how to grow food, and that's a great conversation, an important one as well. But I think we all sort of know the gravity of what's going on right now, and the stakes, and as Marjorie was saying, the immediacy of where we are. And so today I want to share with you something personal, something um, that, uh, that I think can really help all of us. So it, didn't, it didn't just change my life when I learned this, it changed the way I live my life. In fact, it, when, I, um, 
when I came upon this this set of stuff we'll talk about today, um, I actually literally quit my job and went to go focus on it and learn more about it and see if I could help spread these ideas a bit more. So if you're just here to hear about growing food and improving your yields, don't worry. What I'm going to describe does that too. And it will improve your relationship with your animals. It will improve your health and with your kids. That's why I think it's an important conversation. In fact, I think it could even save the world. So let's talk about that. The thing is, in fact, um, let's see if these slides are making it over there. The... Are you guys able to see the slides? Perfect. The, um, so just one, frame, one quote to frame this whole conversation today is the one from Einstein. And he said, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. And this sort of is the same thing I was saying last time. The greater reset, it's going to happen here, right? Because they own the digital space. They're increasingly pushing in to dominating the physical space. And that means there's one truly sacred space that they will never be able to own, that the AI will never be able to predict. And we are shifting back to that here, and that's in the heart. And this is a, um, an interesting conversation. It's a risky conversation. It's a little bit dangerous conversation because the language itself has been weaponized over the years. There's divide and conquer going, in, going on, even about how, how we can talk about this. And I just want to remind folks as well that um, as the Bishop of Avia wrote to Queen Isabella, language is the perfect instrument of empire. And I think we see that in a lot of places, but particularly here where if I talk about you know, meditation, then a lot of religious people will think I'm a, some kind of spiritual kook. And if I use the word prayer, then I'll be discounted by a lot of other people. You know, it's just, it almost doesn't matter how I phrase things because it shuts down people's, people's minds and, and the, the whole thought process. And so I, what I want to ask you to do is not put me during this conversation into any one of those buckets, but try and just listen to the ideas. They're kind of like shoes, right? You can just try them on, see if they fit. If they don't, put them back. But, uh, but certainly bring your critical thinking and your discernment, always bring those. But let's put down the prejudices, and, and especially just with the way I language it. If I say prayer or meditation or focused intent or something like that, we know we're all sort of talking about the same thing, which is, Humans getting together and putting their minds, putting their hearts into something, trying to get something done. Because the bottom line today is that you are powerful. You are very powerful. You're more powerful than you believe. If you take nothing else away from this conversation today, take that. Because it's very true. And let's talk about it. I'm going to start with what I was talking about, this, this first ideas about the heart and this is what i learned years ago that really set me on a different path and changed my life um we all know that we've got a heartbeat you know it's going every so often and usually you'll see oh it's 60 beats per minute or whatever you get like one number but the reality is that your heart is not mechanistic like that there's there's a great amount of variability in between each heartbeat and so when you look at you know here's two and a half seconds of someone's heartbeat, when you look at it, you can see there's, it, it changes. It's not like a metronome. It's not a solid 60 beats per minute. Your heart holds that. It's kind of here and there. And there is information within how your heart is behaving, within those pauses between your heartbeats. 
And so when we start to graph that variability, in fact, you can see here the, the heart rate below, and when they are more frequent heartbeats, when there's, where there's more dense down there, down here, I don't know if you can see the mouse, but down here, um, then the heart rate variability on top goes up, right? We can see that reflected. And when the heart rate slows down and they become more sparse, less frequent, then the heart rate variability, or HRV, goes down. And so this is, it's, it, it forms this nice little sine wave when you're at a resting uh, state, in a good state. And just as a side note, I think it's very interesting that, um, that this looks quite a bit like the, the graphs of solar activity and sunspot activity. But that is a different talk, so I'm going to put that aside. And I want to say the information that is encoded into this HRV, to the variability in your heart rate, has to do with your emotions. And so if you're in a calm, in fact, you can see here, if you're in a, a calm, loving, appreciative, caring, anything you would usually associate with good emotions and usually with, with heart, compassion, right? Anything that sort of radiates from here. Then you see that your heart rate, fall, your heart rate variability falls into this nice, smooth state. We call this a coherent state. And when you're coherent, you're very self-regulated. Your emotions are sort of in this good space versus if you get very upset at something or frustrated or you're in fear where the establishment has been trying to keep a lot of us over the last year and forever before that too, but certainly this last year, uh, then your heart, you lose this. Your heart rate sort of just sort of stutters and goes up for a bit and then comes down and it's just noisy. You lose this nice coherent structure. And it's not just your heart rate that this drives. In fact, when you're in this coherent structure, particularly when you're coherent, it drives. It's like a, um, a, a synchronization signal for the rest of your body. So when you're in that good coherent state, you can see your blood pressure starts to follow this, this same up and down pattern. And in fact, um, your, a lot of the, uh, the up and down is driven by your inhalation and your exhalation. When you breathe in, your heart rate goes up a little bit because your heart's got stuff to pump. And then when you exhale, it sort of slows down because you're waiting for the next breath. And so deep breathing is part of how you can deliberately set yourself in this coherent state. And we'll talk about that more in a second. Um, but it flows into, this is important, when you're in this good coherent state, it really flows in to the rest of you. And it affects everything. Your blood pressure, um, your digestion, your endocrine system, your brain waves, and train to that same coherent state. So when your heart is there, all of you really sinks up and falls in line. And it's basically, um, it's, it, it has a lot to do with increased parasympathetic nervous system and uh, increased activity there. And a good way of saying it is just to say that um, as your systems all sort of biosynchronize, there is, it's, it's optimal performance for physiological, psychological, and cognitive functioning. So better cognition and memory recall. They've done studies into, you know, how, how much information people can recall when they're just sort of upset versus when they deliberately reach this peaceful, synchronized state, coherent state, and uh, recall is much better. Your cortisol production, the stress hormone, drops down, which means you're 
not going to age as quickly if you're in a stressful life, right? It, uh, and this also carries over into, they've done studies with uh, PTSD subjects, ADHD, even digestive disorders. If you practice a few times a day reaching this coherent state and letting your body sort of uh, sync up and, and heal, then uh, you see improvements across all of these things. It's pretty, pretty amazing. And here's a quote from one of these studies from the Institute of Heart Math, which is one of the places they do a lot of this kind of research. Uh, in states of psychophysiological coherence, there is increased synchronization and harmony between the cognitive, emotional, and physiological systems, resulting in efficient and harmonious functioning of the whole body, the whole being. Studies conducted across diverse populations have linked the capacity to self-generate and sustain psychophysiologically coherent states at will with many benefits. In other words, people who can deliberately re-entrain themselves, recenter, return to a coherent state is associated with lots of benefits. Among these benefits, uh, the ability to build resilience, meaning you effectively manage stressful situations and recover from them more quickly without cortisol skyrocketing and losing all your energy to all the frustration. Participants have also experienced substantial improvement in cognitive function, such as memory recall, ability to focus and process information, and improvement generally in learning. So a lot of that I, I spoke about. So this is really, I think, insightful. Because a lot of people aren't even aware that this is a physiological thing that, we're, that, that is happening, whether you're coherent or not, you are in one of these states at all times. And it, there is a better one. There's one that's healthier for you and that performs better. And in fact, what I'm going to say next is that it also is better for everyone around you. But even if, even just now, everything I've said so far, I think this is great. This is part of know thyself. Know the better way to be. Know about your, your own system and how it works. Um, before I even go any further, let me just share if it, because if, if it's so awesome, well, how do we get there? Well, here's something that will, you know, it's a three-step process that sort of gets you back into, and like I said, deep breathing is a big part of it that will get you back into this heart-centered, uh, coherent state. Yeah, first, you, you either just focus your, through your attention or I actually just put my, my hand on my heart because that's the fastest way for me to do it. Um, and then you do some, some of that breathing. And then this is the hard one. You have to hold a positive emotion, but that sounds kind of woo-woo. And No, it's, this is the hard part for real because it has to be genuine, right? It's not what you're thinking about. Our minds are doing crazy stuff all day. It's not about the monkey mind. It's, 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 it's deeper than that. It's what we're really experiencing. And so you, have to, you may have to work to, um, to think about something that makes you grateful or super happy. If it's a, you know, your, your baby at home, that used to be really easy for me because I would just think about my baby but now it's tied into, you know, how am I going to keep them secure? And there's, there's like other things that flow from babies. So it has to change for me. I, I find different things to work on. Um, and if you're upset, which is, you know, this one time that this is a good technique to use is when you're, like we said, we're trying to find resilience and manage stress. You can't just ignore those stressors or that frustration or that anger or that loss or fear, whatever. You're going to have to sort of acknowledge it and be with it. And then try and also get through it on the other side to this place 
So it, there's, it's tricky. That's why there's a star here, because step two is the tricky one. But um, try and find that positive emotion, do your breathing, and I think with practice you'll find, in fact, you can, you can even feel um, when you get there. There are also tools that can sort of watch your heart rate variability um, and, and draw that graph for you. So you can see, is your heart doing this, or are you on a synchronized, coherent state right now? So I wrote down some times when you can do this because a lot of people will say, I don't have time to meditate. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to do this kind of nonsense. Well, this is a really easy three-step technique that you can do between calls, when you're sitting at a stoplight, while you're cooking your eggs in the morning, while you're waiting for the chicken water to refill, uh, even changing diapers. That, one, that one's very hard to hold the positive emotion during. But uh, you know, the point being that it's, this is something you can do during your day, uh, again, to, to get back to what we said is, is a healthier way to be, a, a, a more optimum place to operate. So this is stuff, you know, speaking of know thyself, I wish somebody had handed this to me in the user's manual for life or for my body, because this is, it's, you know, it, it's just inconceivable to me that the people don't know this. Okay, so, but wait, there's more. And I already said, I already sort of tipped the hat here. This state, this um, does affect people around you. So the, the heart has an electromagnetic field that is the strongest one in the human body. It's about 60 times, in fact, the EM field of your brain. It's the strongest one. It is measurable, and it interacts with things around you. You can use a magnetometer and detect it and measure it out even about three feet from the skin. So that's pretty wild, right? Because the reality is then that we're walking around broadcasting our emotions to people and interacting with people in ways that we didn't think we were. We weren't even conscious of this, right? We think, well, if I put a smile on my face and I use happy, how are you doing? I'm fine, right? Like people put on this very superficial facade, but it's not about that at all. The real interaction electromagnetically that's going on is much deeper. It's coming from here. It's coming from what we're authentically feeling at the time. So now we're getting somewhere. It turns out we're all walking around, putting out this energy. And uh, here's, here's the study that, that demonstrates some of, one of the studies that demonstrates what I'm talking about. Uh, the electricity of touch detection and measurement of cardiac energy exchange, exchange between people. And the most significant part here is that it's not just when you're in contact, it's when you're in proximity. And so here's one of the ways. Uh, we provide evidence that an exchange of electromagnetic energy produced by the heart occurs when people touch or are in proximity. Signal averaging techniques are used to show that one's ECG signal, in other words, your heart beat, is registered in another person's EEG, in other words, their brain waves, and elsewhere on the body. Uh, it's strongest when people are in contact, but again, it's detectable even when you're just nearby. Even when I'm just close to you, your brain waves are registering my heartbeats. I mean, this just sounds, it's, it sounds crazy, right? But this is a physical, empirically observable, repeatable, right? This is, this is reality. Um, and obviously, I think this goes, almost goes without saying, it's not just people, it's animals, it's plants. Now we're talking about how you actually improve your yields and your relationship with animals and their health and your health. Um, there was a recent study, I think it was last year, 20, or 2019, 
when, a, when in contact, a horse's heart rate starts to mirror a human's emotions. And it signifies a close, unspoken form of communication between man and beast. This is from a study, Horses and Human Energetics, a study of HRV between horses and humans. Um, and of course, you know, there's a lot of work done into equine therapy and how significant the relationship there is, the bond, sort of that people talk about how deep the understanding is with their horse. They don't quite understand it. I think this is perhaps part of that. But um, this is really interesting stuff. So it, I think it's I think it's mind blowing. Um, we are walking around influencing each other. And and nobody even knows it. This is it's it's staggering. So we people are especially this last year going around and they're sort of doom scrolling through their feeds of oh my god the COVID is and they're broadcasting all this despair and fear to everyone around them. Everyone else on the subway or the bus or at the breakfast table or your office mates they're all feeling your adrenaline or your your fear as you as you learn all this stuff. And you don't even know you're broadcasting. That's significant. That's, that's a real pandemic. This is the real emissions crisis. Most people completely unaware that they're running around polluting, right? Emitting these bad fields, this energetic smog that is literally poisoning the health of people, animals, and plants around them. And probably much more, right? When you consider how the collective field might be interfacing with larger systems. But let's, let's put that aside. So like I said, when I learned about this, uh, the, the state of psychological, physiological coherence, uh, and that we were walking around affecting each other, and no one even knew about it, I said, this is insane. And I quit my job, and I actually went to work at HeartMath for a bit to, to get as close to this information and this work as I could. And it was a fun chapter. Um, this isn't, you know, and, and so I'll just say, HeartMath does use, at times, some language which is woo-woo, but that's fine, right? We can, we can recognize that there is some real science going on here, there's some objective reality, and that's just the way that sometimes they choose to language it, because this isn't spiritual stuff, this isn't woo-woo, I like her energies. No, this is, like I said, a repeatedly measurable electromagnetic field. And now that we've had this conversation, now that we're aware that we're broadcasting this field at all times to everyone around us, at all, whether you want to be or not, right? Whether you're frustrated or... Um, well, now we can start to be responsible for what we're putting out, for how we're influencing people around us energetically. And I think that right now, this is one of the most important responsibilities we can have. We've got 8 billion people running around emitting fields based on how they're really feeling, which is in this past year, it's fear and loss and confusion, loneliness and uncertainty. Now we start to see why the media is always pumping out stuff that's suppressing this energy, that's trying to keep at least our individual fields down, if not perhaps some collective one. That's, that's another part of what's been going on this, this last year. And also that we've been isolated from each other. We've been deprived of, our, of sharing heart energies. 
And I can only speculate about how that affects. Actually, we can speak about that a little bit because sharing heart energies is a big deal too. There's a lot of work. Um, well, just to, just to recap, that's that's where we are now. This heart coherence, this when you reach this good state, it's better for you. It's the optimal state of functioning, and it's better for everyone around you. So I think is another one of those points. Like if we stopped here, that's great. That's success. We've learned something that can make the world a better place. But again, there's more. And again, I hinted at it with this idea that maybe there's a greater field than just the ones, than our individual ones. So this is going to look familiar to a lot of people that watch my channel or suspicious observers. This is the uh, one of the depictions of the way that space weather affects human health, right? The cosmic, the macro affecting us, the micro. And uh, when you scroll through these, you'll see that actually a lot of them do have to do with cardiac behaviors, the interface with your, with your heart. In fact, very briefly, we'll, we'll mention that, um, that HRV itself, your heart rate variability, and this coherent state is also influenced by solar wind and galactic cosmic rays. So in this time of cosmic upheaval, as well as terrestrial upheaval, it's, it's, it's again, yet another reason why we all need to be aware of and working on uh, being in our heart, being staying in this space, in this coherent way of being. But also, the question I want to ask today, here's the uh, abstract from that study. The question I want to ask today, as a giant plane goes overhead, um, is, could this be a two-way relationship? Are we really just receiving from the macro? Or is the micro capable of influencing the macro? Are we broadcasting to much more than just the plants and animals around us, especially when you look at that, that collective field. And this is a, a picture of some Hopi who are doing a, a rain dance, right, to call in rain for their crops. Because this is something that has been encoded into wisdom traditions and indigenous practices since the dawn of time, this idea that, that man, by affecting his own consciousness, can effect change from the greater scheme, whether you call it, you know, appeasing the gods or rain dances or going into trance and doing rituals. You know, again, it's, I don't care how you language it or how it's been encoded into different belief systems. I think that there are truths underneath these language issues. And that's, that's what I'm going for here is the truth today. So if people throughout time have thought that they can effect change from the macro, then that's interesting. And there are recent studies that, that also um, are al aligned with that. If you ever looked at Pierre Lecoudron's uh, Human Cosmic Connection, one of the ideas that he breaks down is that, you know, there's, there's an empire and the divine right, the king has the divine right to rule and things are good and crops are bountiful. But then as the population increases and the elite get greedy and there's corruption and then war starts and resource depletion, they start... Uh, defiling the currency, right? Watering down the silver. You see the same cycles throughout history uh, and the fall of Chinese dynasties. And then this human cosmic connection comes into play because people start to get pissed off. They start to get upset. 
And then all of a sudden, there's this increase in natural catastrophes, and that means that there's even more contention for the same amount of resources, so people start fighting, and it means more repression, and you get into this negative feedback loop, and ultimately, the empire collapses. And uh, suddenly, there's just a dark age, no one knows what's going on, there's competing factions, and ultimately, one person seems to be the victor, rewrites history, a new empire emerges, has the divine right of kings again, and uh, then... People are satisfied. A new golden age begins. You can see it, it all cycles. But the, the key here, the green arrow, is the idea that when people get upset, things get bad environmentally, right? The climate changes literally. So this is just another example of how perhaps we influence um, things greater than just the people around us and our own heart fields when we become conscious of this better way to be, when we make the effort to return to the heart space. I think these are open questions. Can we collectively influence the climate and space weather or crop yields or crime statistics, right? This would be, this would be mind, even more of a mind blow, right? If we're not just victims of cosmic circumstances, but in fact, we're responsible for what's going on here. On the other hand, if that were the case, well, this is, this is great news because just as with our own fields, now we can collectively be responsible for this field that we're emitting between all of us. We just have to, again, we have to wake up to it. We have to be aware of it first. And I think everything that's going on right now and the difficulties and the crises, it might just be the situation that forces humanity to shift back from the mind to the heart. As Einstein said, we're not going to brain our way out of this, guys. We're not going to think our way out of these problems. So, we've talked about a better state, heart coherence. It's good for us, it's good for the people around us, and the plants and animals. And it might just influence much more than that. And there are some studies that, that take a look at that that I want to explore. But we have to go beyond that. We have to go beyond this physical heart and really start to think about consciousness, which is a big, it's a big question. And I know we're going deep today. I said this is going to be a different kind of a talk. I'm not, not holding back at all today. Um, but I don't think this is, I think this is fair to talk about, right? Because this is another, you know, reality is, as a, as a dreamlike thing is something that is also encoded into almost every wisdom tradition out there. We also have, Nobel Prize winning physicists like Max Planck saying, look, I regard consciousness as primary, as fundamental. Everything else flows from that. I'd regard matter, he says, as derivative from consciousness. We can't get behind it. Everything we talk about, everything we regard as existing postulates consciousness first. That's a good quote. So the studies, like I said, looking at the collective, the idea of a collective field uh, showed that a group of coherent individuals and i'll again put this this wild card in there i don't I, I don't want to attach to a particular way i don't want to say it's people who are praying or people who are meditating or focusing their intention or visualizing out you know what whatever words work for you i ask you to use those words here because i think all of us i mean if nothing else right now we all need to be setting aside what divides us and trying to figure out how to come together and what I'm suggesting is that when we all put our hearts to it, right here, then we can influence reality. There's something called the Maharishi effect, or 
that's what the transcendental meditation folks call it, which is a particular brand. And I use that deliberately. It's a particular brand of meditation that's very popular in Hollywood because it's very expensive. I think it's kind of a, you know, you have to buy your, um, your mantra and then you just sit there and repeat your mantra. So it's a form of mantra meditation, but with a very big price tag and a, and a nice marketing package. But the, the good thing about the fact that they're taking so much money is that they can then fund some of these studies that they've done. So at least we'll give them that. Um, and the studies show that, yes, groups of meditators can influence things beyond statistically significant margins. So one study from India here in Delhi showed that meditators decreased crime, the probability of less than one hundredth of a percent to decrease the crime by 11% in the sample. And then more recently in Washington, D.C. in 93, there was a study where a group of meditators got together and they said what they were going to do in advance, right? Here's their art. We're going to do this. Here's our hypothesis. We postulate that we will be able to affect violent crime. And it did by 23.5%, which is a very statistically significant uh, margin. This group of meditators believes that they were able to uh, influence the behavior just by holding a heart-centered energy, whatever. Again, language fails me here. Vibration or energy or prayer. I don't don't know. But here it is that they were able to to do this. And they said they were going to do it. And then they did it. So I think this is worth thinking about. But I know a lot of people are thinking, this is this is ridiculous. This guy's gone off. The, the, you know, the train has left the station. This is all nonsense. We should just go back to what's been working forever. What, what was that again? What, what was it that was... I don't know that anything's been working. Um, how much time do I have here, guys? Can someone give me a time check? Yeah, let's do a Q&A. That's a great idea. I... I I had a little bit more to say about just how if you look into the dark agenda, and I'm not going to do that today, but the bottom line is that they want complete surveillance and AI control so that they can hand over reality to these non-physical entities. And that's that's ridiculous, right? But it's actually going on. They've been channeling these, these, these um, entities for hundreds of years, and they've been dictating the course that the elites have been taking, you know, they've been doing seances, you can read about it, the real society and all this crazy stuff. But they've been channeling these non-physical entities to figure out what to do and building towards this reality where the AI controls everything because these non-physical entities can then take direct control of physical reality. But that whole absurd-sounding reality of what we're going through right now depends on this idea that consciousness can affect reality. And so if we accept that that's where we are now, then we also have to accept, again, that we are powerful. We are just insanely powerful, more powerful than we believe and much more powerful than they'd like us to believe. And so I think let's leave it there and I'd, li- I'd really like to open up for questions at this point. Can you hear me now, Christian? I sure can. Okay, cool. Everybody give a round of applause for Christian Westbrook. Thank you. All right, Christian, we do have some questions for you. So first, I just want to say I I loved his talk. 
uh, whenever we reached out to Christian to ask him to come back to do the greater reset again, he told me that he didn't really want to talk about food this time. He's like, uh, well, you know, I told him we're going to put you on the regenerate the earth day. And maybe that's just my assumption, right? Christian wants to talk about food and permaculture. But in fact, he has a lot more to say. Imagine that. He's a brilliant mind, and we really do appreciate you bringing us this knowledge, man. And I, like I told you before, I think your message of talking about heart and centering and heart focus fits in perfectly with today's theme. Anybody else feel like a perfect message for talking about connecting to the earth? Absolutely. So while I get my camera fixed, we do have a couple of questions for you, brother, that we, we put out to the audience. And I want to pose if anybody has anything they'd like to ask directly to Christian here in our audience, you can come stand over here and we'll we'll do that. But I know we got a couple from the audience. Ramiro, you want to pop those on screen? Pop one of them on there. And again, if anybody's listening on Telegram or Facebook or elsewhere, ask your questions in all caps and we'll, we'll look out for them. How can we stop their agenda by or can we stop their agenda through mass prayer or dance, and somebody's asking about, regarding the weather. What do you think about that idea? How can we stop their plan through um, through prayer through, or dance? Through prayer or any of these words, right? Meditation, focus, intent, whatever you want to use. Um, yeah. So I mean, that's that is the question that, that, frankly, that I'm asking today is there are scientifically valid studies indicating that we can influence reality and outcomes around us in ways that we don't completely understand. And so if we can really start to return to our hearts, and, and again, it's, I want to reiterate that when, um, when an experienced heart coherence practitioner is in the room with you, and if, you know, you've, you, you've felt this when you go to see a really good sermon at church or when you're in a good meditation with a, with a guru, right? And you come in and you just, whoa, it just feels good and you get really centered all of a sudden it's contagious and that's the bottom that's what that's why they want us isolated so as we have these conversations and as more of us learn about the importance of maybe they learn about this this science today or maybe they don't maybe they just know i feel better and things around me go better when i come from here um so as more and more of us do this it actually becomes easier for everyone else to snap into that coherent state as well and so this kind of speaks to like a hundred month monkey scenario where if we just naturally, you and I do it more and more, and we realize this is important, then people around us start to maybe hold that space more often. And then ultimately, there's like a, a breaking point where we enter a, a totally new situation. And at that point, I really do think if consciousness is primary, then any of the rules we associate with physical reality can actually go out the window. So I think it's an open question how powerful we are, right? That's, I don't know even that there's a, a limit on that. So let's find out. Is my answer. Question from Austin. What is my experience with non-physical entities? I am a pretty grounded guy. I lived a long time in my brain and pretty close to machines for computers. So I don't have a lot of experiences myself with that kind of stuff. I, I do know through deep study, like I said, into... Um, the agenda and the people that are perpetrating it, that they are, are, are like, they believe and, you know, um, these, again, these non-physical entities, you've read about the Vril Society and um, uh, the, the things they channel who then dictate how they're going to do things and set world policy, Alice Bailey and theosophy, a lot of the, if you look at the history of these people and where they come from, it's not just 
a control agenda. It's the control agenda with the idea of then putting in this weird Gaia worship. And, you know, it's a, basically, it's it's fastest way to answer this. It's, it is clear to me that this is a spiritual battle we're fighting. And so while I tend to be, um, exist mostly in a five sense reality, I, I don't for a second believe that that's all that's going on there. So... Awesome. Thank you for that. So I got one more here, and it is, what are your thoughts on um, Organite, the research of William Reich? And, you know, that's a big topic itself, but are you familiar with William Reich? And it says he did a lot of experiments on human feelings and orgone energy and the weather and condition of the land. What do you, oh, you got some Organite in his hand. All right, tell us about yeah, it. <laughs> I am familiar with it. Um, it's hard for me to quantify, but, um, you know, a lot of these things are, you know, here's a, another way of answering this is, there are some examples where for quantum phenomenon or even for cold fusion, I've read some of these things where like the guys who are trying to work on a cold fusion device get it to work, but then they bring in investors who don't think it should work and it ceases to work. And this is definitely true of quantum where what you expect to happen influences the outcome you get. And so we're kind of on the edges of like, certainly of, of what science wants to talk about and what we're allowed to talk about. But where we get in a conversation like that is that if you surround yourself with these and you think it's bollocks, then it's not going to do anything. But if you surround yourself with these and you really, you believe it, you think, hey, I put my own energy and time and, and beliefs and consciousness into this thing and its purpose is to cloud bust or you know, whatever, um, whatever the thing is, these, uh, then, then you, you very well could get some results from it. In fact, there's a guy named Bruce Lipton who wrote a book called Biology of Belief and it's all about how what you believe influences the way that uh, the different processes, biological and otherwise, play out. It's really fascinating stuff. All right. Excuse me. We got one more question out here in, in Iwa for you. What was it? Okay. So the question is, what are your thoughts on the connection between heart, love, and food? And heart, food, and mind, and, and yeah, the, the food depletion itself. Did that come through for you? Heart, love, and food depletion. Excuse the internet issues, friends. Did yeah. you get that question? I think so. I think what is the connection between heart, mind, uh, love, and food depletion issues? Well, I think, you know, um, there it is. The, I think a lot of what we're experiencing today is a symptom of not having been connected to our heart, right? Like we said, we're not going to think our way out of these problems. These are all problems that the, that, that mind has created that identifying with ego instead of with the fact that we are bigger than that, that we're all here. Uh, and, and there are, when you, when you live here and when you decide and, and feel and think from here, you, you know, your mind doesn't always, it, it, it's it's not driving anymore and there are times it gets upset at that it's like hey wait a minute this isn't the decision i would make you know, or like this is this underdoes something that i spent a lot of my personal time on but but you know that it's the right decision here to do um and so yeah i think as we look around a world where you know where our our resources are collectively are going to blocking out the sun and genetically modifying foods and uh, complete surveillance systems instead of to how do we regenerate the damage that we've already done how do we get food to other people that are needing it instead of incentivize existing people to, you know, it, it, all, clearly all the resources and decisions are being made very poorly. 
And I think the only way that people are going through their days, you know, because I know there are people making the bad decisions here, but the whole, I mean, we've got the world population building its own prison. And if people would, would shift from here to here, I think they would just stop. I think they would stop doing that. And I think we would then start to, on a local level, start working on how to solve these problems. And, you know, like we talked about last time with the greater food reset and the greater reset in general, these resistance cells or these local economies would gradually grow and organically and, and form a bigger um, thing to, uh, to solve these problems uh, naturally. But, uh, but we got to, you know, we got to walk away from the systems that are built by uh, excessive identification with mind. So thanks very much, everyone, as we get there. There you are. Um, I know I went out on a limb today, so I, I want to thank you for coming out on the limb with me. I really enjoyed it, and thanks very much for having me back to The Greater Reset. It's great to be with you. And uh, some interconnections on our side. So if, for those who are watching, whether in Austin or in if it's not coming through, the, the replays will be fine. We do apologize for that. Let me let it reconnect, and we have one more question before we go to our next speaker, Penny Livingston. All right. Okay, cool. So I, the, the let's put that last question on the premiere. Uh, um, this, this is just a, a simple one. It's this takes me back to uh, Skypo for like a 14-4 modem, I feel like. Um, I think the question may be how to establish heart and mind coherence. And that's a good question. Um, the, the, the bottom line is to do a method like the one we discussed before where you're aiming to recenter yourself in your heart. It doesn't mean ignoring any negative emotions and trying to run from them because that doesn't work. That, that'll just keep you from getting it. It means... Acknowledging them, feeling with them, you know, be with the be with the fear. Say it's it's okay, and and then once it's sort of run its course, then you come back here and um, focus on something positive. Do the breathing that you know will give you the nice smooth up and down heart rate variability curve, which means that your body starts to shift into that more optimum way of being. That your parasympathetic activity comes up, and that your heart is driving and you have access to intuition, and all these effects that, that, that all these studies we enumerated are indicating come from this state. Um, and then once you're there, then you, you can think a little more clearly about things. So I think, it all, again, it all flows from here. And you can still, you know, another quote from Einstein is that we, um, the mind is a, is, a, is a, what is the quote? Is a dangerous servant, and the, the intuition is a tremendous gift. But we've created a society that has forgotten the gift and lives in this in this dangerous place. And he's basically saying the same thing, that we must return to intuition. And then our mind, it's still there. We can still use it to, to deal with the problems that we have to get through to achieve the goals that our heart is driving us to. So as long as this is driving, then this is a fantastic tool. But once we start to use this to figure out who am I, you know, what, what, how do I need to prove myself to other people? This, this thing asks the wrong and answers the wrong questions. And I think this is more about how do I help? How can we improve our lives? How can I be of service? 
And, uh, and when we answer those questions, then we start making the right difference in the world. And thank you again. And if you're watching right now, you can take the moment while we reconnect to try out that, that method with me. I like to put my hand teacher, one of two teachers that certified me in the last year, and she's certified, I don't know, Penny, I would estimate thousands of people over the years that you've been teaching. Um, I, I've only an information, uh, but she is designing our food systems, redesigning our lives. Oh, I don't, I'm not even sure what it's about, but I know it's going to be awesome. So please welcome <laughs> to the stage, Penny Livingston. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, now for something completely different <laughs> from the last talk. Uh, I prepared something a little more practical, even though uh, I have worked with the Institute of Noetic Sciences with permaculture, where they do a lot of uh, work into deep inner space and heart connection and a lot of what the former talk was about is a lot what I'm about because when you're working with plants you, you you can't help but connect with your heart but so I have some images that I'm going to share um, let me see if I can figure this out okay okay is that good is it all working can you see okay yeah or no? Let's see. Can I just want to take a moment? I just need some feedback about sharing my screen. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to do this. Let me see. Sharing Google Docs. Let's see. Do you see a slideshow up there, Derek? Hello. I think, okay, well, um, I'm not sure what you guys are seeing. I just need some feedback. Um, okay, well, share screen. Screen. Um, okay, well. Let me know if you can see this. I need, let's see. Um, so, Okay, I guess, okay, there we go. Now we're, now we're doing it. Thank you. Okay, so here we go. So, um, yeah, so what I'm going to talk about is uh, regenerative agriculture and regener mainly focusing on trees and perennial plants. And it's, uh, yeah, so it's a little different than the last talk, but I am going to talk about food and talk about medicine and talk about, you know, connection and how, these systems um, can save the world. <laughs> so um, let's see. So let's see if I go back here. 
Oh my goodness. This is a different format than I'm used to. Um, okay. I just want to, okay. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I might just be able to do storytelling this time because I'm not seeing how to, how to um, advance the slideshow on here. So, hmm. Well, that is a thing. So, hmm. Sorry about this, guys. Okay, well, I don't think uh, I'm going to just stop sharing my screen and just uh, tell stories <laughs> and talk. So one of the issues that's facing the world, Pachamama, the earth today, is our agriculture. And um, my teacher was Bill Mollison. And, uh, you know, one of these things he says is that one of the most destructive human activities on the planet is how we grow our food. And this is, con you know, relating to conventional agriculture, big ag, monoculture agriculture, poison you know, chemicals, constantly churning over the earth and pulverizing the soil and, and just trying to eke out as much as we can out of the earth and not really thinking about soil health. So um, then that's one of the issues. And then the other issue is around the salting of the soil. So he says, you know, like for any time, if we look to history, any time we've tried to irrigate dry lands, it's failed. It's, you know, if you think about the Fertile Crescent, you know, it's a desert. You know, we leave deserts in our wake. And so what I want to talk about are the solutions um, to, those, to those issues. And, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, th there's a lot of problems. But so um, what I want to speak about is just the idea of these food forests and th the planting of perennials. Some of the terms are like agroforestry systems, but looking at, you know, annual vegetables, but having it be in a support system of perennial plants. And um, so one of the ideas is this idea of the seven layer uh, food forest where, you know, you've got your tall canopy trees and then you've got your smaller canopy trees and then you've got your shrubs and you've got your herbs and you've got your ground covers and you've got your vines and you've got your tubers and they're all in concert in diversity and they're all um, they're all working together uh, in and so the advantages of all this stuff of doing it this way is um, we can um, look at um, there's all these advantages like there's biodiversity there's functional interconnectivity between the plants. There's nutrient availability and, and, and source from the plants themselves. You have multiple yields. There's no waste or pollution. Their inputs go down, you know, over time instead of going up. It's very stability and it increases production over time. So, um, you know, that's one of the advantages. And then, um, the products that can be, you know, we've got food and we've got fiber and we've got 
fodder and forage and pharmaceuticals and fungus and fecundity and fertility and fertilizer and fuel and families. And, you know, we have all of these F words in our forests. And so we can produce so much in, in that. And then what trees do is they actually convert, you know, sunlight into sugar and wind into wood and CO2 into leaves and humus and roots. And it enhances rainfall and there's structural habitat and microclimates and biodiversity. And, you know, they're just really, really magical. And um, so I am sorry because I prepared this whole incredible presentation with lots of pictures and stuff, but I don't, I guess it's just not working for this show. Um, so um, I'm a little bit at a loss in terms of what to talk about, but, but given the last talk that was happening is we can talk about connection and we can talk about the magic of the garden. And so the, these are the types of gardens that I plant. I, I do grow annuals, vegetables, but I have a concert of perennials that also act as mulch species and they, they act as compost species and they bring up minerals and they actually help feed all the other plants. And so my garden has this whole level of biodiversity. So when I walk out, especially in the late morning, there's like, um, there's like, you know, birds and butterflies and insects. And I just got a message from free thinkers says, try it again. It was working. Well, I will try it again and I'll see, let's just take a minute, but I can definitely tell stories. Um, let's see. So, um, well, I'm not, yeah, there we go, but okay. Okay, so what I'm not being able to do, I guess if I advance it in my other screen, that works. Okay, let's try this. Yeah, okay, so that's what I'll do. I'll just advance it on my other screen. Thank you, Freethinker. You just helped me out. So, so a lot of the um, approach to these ideas is to think about um, what plant communities are we living in? You know, like where, where are you? Who are your, who are your non-human relatives? You know, what are your plant communities? And, and to get to know them, because once you start to understand that, you'll start to understand what can grow in your environment. You know, so for example, I've spent a lot of time in Bali and um, in, uh, in Bali, uh, this is a, village I visited and there's basically no road there. Um, you have to hike in and it's, there's no shops there. So the surrounding forest is their, um, their grocery store, their hardware store, their, their, um, you know, met, you know, their pharmacy, you know, all around that forest is where they gather there for all of their needs in this village. And yes, there are people that still live this way, you know, that have their food completely surrounded by them and not only their food, but their, all of their, all of their needs are met by, by these plants and met by these forests. Um, and so like in a temperate forest, the nutrients are stored in the soil 
And in a tropical forest, the nutrients are stored in the plants. So when we go in and we just start slashing and burning and logging in a tropical forest, we're basically taking all the nutrients out. And when these incredible rains come, even the silica is washed out of the soil. It just completely depletes the soil. So to understand our plant communities and understand that when we take out the trees, we take out um, so much. And in dry lands, the nutrients are stored in the roots and the body of the plants, like cactus and um, these kind of fleshy tubers is where they store water and, um, and nutrients. So when it gets really dry and there's no water, they'll either go dormant or they'll die and be reborn again when the rains come or they, um, or they're just, they, they'll lose their leaves or do things so that they don't uh, lose water and be able to conserve their water. So we can look to the plants when we're looking at how to survive in these different climates. And I love another saying that Bill, my teacher said, you know, a forest is a lake. You don't see it, but under the ground is where the water's hanging out in healthy forests because the roots of the forest and the organic matter all absorb water and the fungi, let's not forget the fungi and all the microbes and all the critters, you know, are assisting in helping conserve and store um, water and also conserve and build healthy living soil. So a lot of times we just like, I like to think about how do we design our own lives like a forest? How can we live in interconnection like a tree or like a forest? Um, so, you know, the, this is some pictures of what these kind of systems can look like. And when you see these curves like this, it's either like super cool and it's flat and they're just doing some cool patterning, but it's also um, how they design their garden beds in relationship to water. So if that's on a slight slope, you know, you'll often see these little curves and kind of snaky patterns. I think, yeah, like here, you know, you can see, you can tell this farm it's in the Midwest of the United States. You know, it is designed in relationship to water. And that's like really important because now the water can flow in a way where it feeds the land instead of just rushing off. Uh, because And these, these, all of these um, garden beds are designed either right on contour, meaning like level or slightly off where they're slowly directing water to other places on the land. Um, and another good example in Portugal, if there's anybody in, from Portugal, there's Tamara. And where there's a man, a permaculture man in our uh, community named Sepp Holzer. And his idea was creating these water retention landscapes. So we start with the water. And when we, if you start going into some of the magic of water, uh, it sounds like this audience really loves to go to those places. Uh, water is pretty magical. And they're actually doing research now around when sunlight and water connect, there's this activation, this explosion that happens that creates like this energetic in the water. It, it, the sunlight actually feeds the water, this energy. And then what they're finding with the, the through like electron microscopic photography, how the water is activated. And, um, and it, it, there's an intelligence in water that also when it, when you start looking at how water relates to plants, it's even more magical because they 
the level of interconnection is beyond what we can even imagine and beyond what we even know right now. And some of us, some people are just beginning to understand what the wisdom keepers have known forever. <laughs> so here's a couple of before pictures. You know, you got your lawn and here you go. This was in Hawaii. You know, you have to know it's in Hawaii. But this was in eight months later between here and here. And that's pretty much all food. Um, here's another example of kind of a wild little food forest where you've got, you know, raspberries and rhubarb and apples and you know, squash and all these different things all growing together in concert. So they, it doesn't look like an organized farm, but it's you can walk away and come back and, you know, very little maintenance is required in, in a forest like this. There's a guy in Brazil named Ernst Gotch who's, who coined the term Symtropic Agroforestry, and he's been doing a lot of things around this too, where he's creating these systems and where it can be taught and it can be replicated on how to create these regenerative agroforestry systems on how we grow our food. And, um, you know, this, these kinds of systems is where we need to go. And when we're talking about things like climate change or global weirding, th these kinds of systems are much more stable when it comes to temperature change or extremes like extreme droughts or extreme floods. Um, when you have biodiversity, sure, some things are going to perish in these extremes, but there's a lot of other things that are not. And I've been actually collecting a list of plants that are like, I'm calling my climate change plants. Like what are things that can live in the Arctic, but they can also live in the tropics. An example of that would be mulberry. Um, another example of that would be chard, dandelion, you know, there's there's a, quite a few plants that can live in very extreme temperatures. Um, and then just learning how to manage forests uh, through coppicing, which is where you, in dormant, you take it in the dormant time, you cut it close to the base, and then it sends up these shoots. And then you come in and you kind of thin the shoots. And all the time, they can be, they can be fishing poles, they can be stakes, they can be... Uh, you know, tool handles, as they grow, they have different uses, and then they grow back again. And it could also be different kinds of firewood. And then you can come back again and cut it again, and then do, just do this cycle over and over again, and be harvesting um, wood products. So here's some examples of what that looks like. It's willow for, for baskets, growing mushrooms, and if you have, you know, pollarding became a style in urban, like if you go to Aix-en-Provence, you know, the sycamores down their main avenues are, are done this way. But really in the, in the past, it used to be so that they could have access to these young shoots and they used them for firewood and it was out of reach of the animals. So the animals couldn't, um, you know, have, you know, they could, they couldn't eat them. And then just you can weave and pleach trees. It's so fun. And if you have long, you know, like in an urban or suburban corridor or a small yard, you can make fences with your fruit trees, especially with apples and pears. And so here is in Marai. So, you know, many of us from Western industrial culture, industrialized cultures think we're so smart. But actually, this is ancient in Peru, uh, in the Sacred Valley, 
and it's actually an agricultural experimental station. And the temperature difference between the top and the bottom is, is almost, it's like 37 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit difference. And they were actually importing soils from different areas and then planting things in all these different layers to see what does better in the different little microclimates and different temperatures. And it's now kind of an archaeological site where the tourists come and see it. But um, once upon a time, you know, during the time of the Inca, it was an active agricultural research center. And, you know, spending time in Peru, uh, I got to spend time with this man, Mario, at his farm out up in an area above the town of Pisac in a place called Paru Paru. For those of you who know Peru, it's a very, very special place. But he's sharing, there's like 50 different varieties of potatoes here. And when I look at them, they all look the same to me. Like I could not tell them apart, but he would, you know, pick one up and he'd be like, well, this one's good for roasting and this one's good for soups and this one we bake and this one, you know, we, we store for the winter. And, you know, there's all these different types of potatoes and all different, some of them are medicinal, you know, different uses. But when you look at it from a layman's eye, I just, they all look like little brown potatoes. So we went out and they taught us how to plant potatoes. And it was really funny because they do it so fast. And we were all a bunch of kind of spazzes, the people the white people that were there, but um, you know, the Peruvians just have it down about how they plant their potatoes. And then we came back and we got to actually eat every one of those potatoes. We opened one up and one was yellow inside. The other one was pink and one was crunchy and another one was creamy and it was amazing. And so the people like Mario has been living a lineage that has lasted for thousands of years. And what, I learned from him is like the way they're very, very high up. They're probably at 16,000 feet. They're very high. You know, we're eating coca leaves because the air was very thin up there where they live and they, they plant the potato, but they'll plant the potatoes in a field and they won't go back again and replant those potatoes in that field for seven years. They have a seven year rotation. And in that time they let their alpacas uh, just graze around in there and poop and revitalize the land during that seven years before they go back and replant. And one of the things that happened, he's sharing this, this was a permaculture class that I was teaching and he came to learn, but really I, I asked him to share his knowledge uh, with us, which he gladly did. And as he's sharing his life with a lot of the students, and these are students that were coming from all over the world, you know, they were coming from, you know, Brazil and Canada and Spain and Hong Kong and um, U.S. and, you know, different parts of Peru. You know, these, these are Andean people from the Andes, but then there's people from the jungle that were there. And there were people from Lima, from the cities, the urban Peruvians were there. And so it was a very diverse group of people. And uh, he's explaining about his life and somebody said, well, what happens if you have a crop failure? And he says, well, that's okay. Cause everybody else in the village will just take care of you. And then he said, you know, yeah, if somebody needs help building their house, the people in the village just help, help somebody build a house. Or if there's an elder that needs care, people get together and just help each other. And the look on the faces of the people in the, in the group, they were just like, wow, 
like, really? That's how you live? And Mario is kind of going, well, yeah, you know. But what happened in that moment was Mario really realized that what the life that he was living was really, really special. And why that's important is because according to him too, you know, he said this, is that what he's being told by the government and by corporations is growing all these hundreds of varieties of potatoes is insignificant. That what he's doing in his life is insignificant. And we're going, no, your life is so important. It's not only important for you, but it's important for us that you, that it's, it's so the theme of this whole experience was really more about remembering who we are. You know, it's not only important, like say, like say for indigenous people, we can speak, you know, on behalf, you know, in regard to say all indigenous people is like, it's not only important for the indigenous people to not forget who they are, but it's important for us Western industrialized people for the indigenous people to not forget who they are. Just like it's important for, indigenous people of the world for us as Western industrialized people to not forget who we are and for us to not forget what it means to be human and coming together around food is one of those kind of vehicles. If you, excuse me, if you will, where that humanity comes to light, you know, I believe food and music are the two things that were, you know, humanity, people can fall in love with each other again over food and music. And that's, that's why we focus a lot on, on agriculture and growing and plants and connections because the plants bring their own magic into, into our worlds. And so, you know, a lot of the theme of the work that I'm doing is about remembering, you know, remembering who we are, remembering what it means to be human, remembering, you know, and re recognizing that the word human and the word humus comes from the same root. And, and humble humility is, is also from the same root. And so there's a connection there about being humble, being human, and building humus so we can grow hummus. <laughs> so, yeah, so this was a very powerful experience, not only for, for me and the students in the class, but also for Mario and his family because when there's interest from the people from away, we're, we're in many ways, we're a reflection we're a mirror for people um, when they're only hearing this one message through the government or through media, through, you know, wherever. And they start getting this other message of, wow, this is amazing. What you're doing is amazing. And this is special and you're special and we need you, you know, we need you as much as, you know, you know, you need to remember for yourself, but we need you also. <laughs> so so as a result, um, the work I'm on the board of a group called of a of a an organization called Sweet Child Peru, and uh, these girls I love these girls they were they grew up high in the mountains, and this is down in the Sacred Valley, and they're learning how to grow food organically. Uh, there's a long this is a whole nother long story. I don't know how much time I have to tell, but but uh, the people in this region of Peru. They actually don't have a history of land connection because they've been colonized for so long that they don't, they don't know how to grow food without 
uh, chemicals. Um, I'll, I'll do a little quick, uh, short bullet point story, which I learned from an elder the last time I was in Peru. Um, during the pandemic, I ended up getting sequestered in Peru for 10 months. I meant to go down there for six weeks and they closed the borders. And I, I guess I got, I got stuck there for, for 10 months. And during this time, you know, the elders and a lot of the community were going, wow, Penny's here. Let's take advantage of her being here. And we ended up doing some projects together and it was really cool. And this is one of them. So what I learned from one of the elders is that there was an agricultural revolution in Peru that lasted for 30 years from 1940 to 1970. And what was happening is throughout all of Peru, I really only know the story of this sacred valley, but in these villages of Poran, Arin, and Silla Cancha. But th this, this thing was happening all over Peru. And these rich landowners had these big haciendas, very much like in Mexico, where they had the big hacienda landholders. And this revolution happened over 30 years, and, and around 1970, the people won. And the haciendas were broken up. But the way the haciendas would control the people was through controlling their water. So if they didn't cooperate with the haciendas, they wouldn't get access to water because the haciendas were, were, were located at the, at the mouth, at the springs, at the sources of the water. So they controlled all that during these, you know, these times. And so the people won in 1970 and the land, the haciendas got broken up. The people got access to land. They got their parcels and, you know, the community ended up running the water system. They have a, there's a cooperative that runs the water systems now and all this. But what also was happening in 1970 was the green revolution, which was when ag, ag, agricultural com, chemical companies were going all over the world. And I've also worked in Indonesia and Africa. This is a story that happened all throughout the global South and but actually basically all over the world where they're telling people, you know, better living through chemicals. And so when the people got access to the land, the universities and the governments were coming in and telling them, okay, you want to grow corn? Here's how you grow corn. And they gave them all the spray, 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 plant, plant, plant. You know, corn is a very heavy feeder, just sucking the lifeblood out of the land. Okay, spray more fertilizers, you know, more, more pesticides. And that's how the people grow corn there. So very few people know how to grow food organically, except for my friend Mario growing his potatoes up in the high mountains. He, they still have that connection to land, to their historical ancestral practices, but the people down in the valley don't. And so, so um, we've been teaching them how to grow food on chemicals in these girls they went through a very rebellious stage, you know, typical like 13 year old girl, you know, whatever, you know, and they, they were very rebellious, but then they came back and realized how important this is. And they're helping their communities up in the higher elevations to, and some of the um, communities up there to gain access to, to different ways of growing food and creating a more diverse diet. Uh, there were some, some communities up there in a culture that prided itself to have food, enough food stored at any one time for every human, every, you know, children and adults for two years. That's their culture. But a month into this pandemic and a lot of the people up in these villages were starving. 
because they couldn't travel. They couldn't get their, their produce to market. They couldn't, um, yeah, they couldn't drive anywhere. I mean, the country literally shut down and you couldn't drive. You had to get everything within walking distance. And so um, these girls started facilitating and we, um, the community started organizing and, and packed a whole bunch of food up on a horseback up to these people to feed hundreds of families over during the pandemic. But these girls are going to become the leaders and the teachers of their community in as we move into the future. In fact, they already are. These young ones are now becoming the teachers for other people. So the, the you know, there's other Peruvians and people are coming around this garden now and they're looking at the quality and the flavor of the produce and so there's a there's this momentum building as I speak right now towards transitioning to organic. Uh, while I was in Peru, also a farmers association started, um, and uh, with people coming together, and that was where I was helping assist as an educator to help learn teaching about you know composting and how to compost and how to create these bio brews, compost teas, and and bocacci. We made a bunch of bocacci, which is a fermented uh, compost um, material with lots of, and really talking about honoring the microorganisms in the soil and building living soil. And so now they're in a place now where they're, they're educating themselves that the foundation's been laid, the seeds have been planted and they're moving on and their resiliency is, is unstoppable. And so, yeah, so this is happening all over the world. So there's a whole notion of community economic localization and, so what the, the lesson in Peru is all the people who were growing, there was like toxic strawberries for, for export. They were all really suffering because they couldn't get their, their produce to market. But the people that were, that were actually growing food for their community were thriving because, you know, they could, they were selling everything they grew. So the people that were, had local, they were supplying the local community were thriving during this pandemic where the people that were exporting their, their products were not, which was very telling in terms of, you know, what are the essential worker, who are the essential workers and what are the essential, I guess, jobs and, and practices to be doing during a crisis. And so just to kind of share that this is going on, you know, all over the world. And um, this is an organization called uh, Terra Madre. It's um, part of the slow food movement, but it happens in Italy every two years. Uh, people come from thousands of countries. I think there were 6,000 farmers and about four or 500 chefs. And I was part, I was a, I'm a, I was a farmer at the time. I'm not now, but I was then. And I got to go in our farming community and um, it was all these people coming together for clean, fair, safe food. So on that stage, our delegates from pretty much every country in the world, standing strong in solidarity for clean, fair, safe food. And during this time, you know, we would break up into delegations. So, of course, I went to the U.S. delegation because that's where I'm from. But I wish I had gone to the Middle Eastern delegation because a really special thing happened there where there was an, and this is really telling now given what's going on, 
but uh, there was a Palestinian farmer and an Israeli farmer, and they did this gesture in Middle Eastern culture where you dip bread in salt and you eat the bread. And, and, and dipping bread in salt is an important gesture because salt lasts forever. And it's a gesture in that you are, these two farmers are in solidarity with each other forever to support clean, fair, safe food. So this Palestinian farmer and this Israeli farmer dipped their bread in salt and ate the bread together. And it just brought the house down. <laughs> like everybody was crying um, because we realized that often in many ways, the farmers are the peacemakers. The farmers are the people that are the first line when there's like depleted uranium or there's bombs or there's war. It's the farmers that either impacted, um, you know, in, in a way, I mean, everybody's impacted. How can you not say that? But, you know, the land, just in terms of the land, the poisons that are released onto the land from war, they're impacted in that way. Um, and, and they're having to eke out clean, fair, safe food in, in that situation. And so by, you know, we're starting to realize that um, farmers are so connected to the earth in so many ways that they are the peacemakers because they see the bigger picture. They see the interconnection. Water doesn't see borders. You know, air doesn't see borders. Soil doesn't see borders. Seeds and wind doesn't see borders. And so um, they see the importance of, or we see the importance of, of what it means that we need to live together and we need to get along. And we need to support each other because by supporting each other, we're supporting ourselves. And that also um, ties in a lot to the former speaker around living in our hearts and being connected in that way. And so in this farming community that you're looking at on your screen, that was happening. And there were people on that stage together, like there were, during that time, I think Iraq and US were in war and these warring countries that were in war where the farmers were all there together on that stage in solidarity for clean, fair, safe food. And so it's, it's just so you all know, this is going on, this is happening. And, um, and then in, in other countries, you know, more like in the US and in, in Europe, there's the transition town movement, uh, which was really created about, you know, how do we create our energy descent plan? How do we start living within our energy budget? How do we start living within our soil budget and our food budget and our water budget? Like, how do we start living in a way with that's not only sustainable, but regenerative? How do we start stop being less bad and actually being regenerative? How can we supply for our needs in a way that we're not poisoning everybody all the time or poisoning everything? Like, how can we instead of depleting soil to grow our food, build soil to grow our food, you know, instead of polluting water through, uh, you know, our waste stream, actually cleaning water through that process. And so, you know, to quote Bill like one more time, you know, he says, you know, our problem, the, the problems are getting increasingly complex, but the solutions are embarrassingly simple. And we find that to be true. We know how to build soil by growing, you know, we know how to grow food and build soil. We know how to clean water. 
We know how to turn waste into resource and waste into food. We know how to, you know, provide energy in ways that isn't, you know, we don't have to be mining everything all the time. Like there's ways of doing things that we just have to start shifting our thinking in more in connection uh, and, and vision and stop robbing from our future generations and stealing from them. Instead, ask our future generations, you know, think about, you know, what would, what would our great, 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 great grandchildren thank us for? Like, what can we do now that our great, great grandchildren will thank us for? And, you know, how can we be good ancestors to our future generations? You know, this is, this is what this is about. You know, you think it's just about food. Well, it's about a much bigger picture. It's about the interconnection of, of everything. You know, when we're talking about food, because we're talking about plants, we're talking about soil, we're talking about animals, we're talking about relationship, we're talking about transportation and transport and, you know, economy, you know, we're talking and health, you know, we're talking about all these things, social justice. Um, I don't know of anything that isn't related to food and agriculture in some way or another and, um, and vice versa. So as we move in and we're starting to make decisions, you know, we have a perspective that if we start looking, you know, taking back and looking at the impact of, you know, the decisions that we're making and seeing how it's landing on the land. I mean, I live in the Pacific Northwest uh, in Washington State, and this is a very, this is not an uncommon landscape in Oregon, Washington, Northern California area and other parts of the world. And then we have to start realizing that we have neighbors and the decisions that we're making. And we can also make these decisions with our dollar. You know, who are we buying from? Are you buying from the local farmer or are you buying from Cargill, whatever, Arthur Daniel Midland, you know, corporation. And these are our, these are our neighbors and they're there and they're around and they don't have a voice when it comes to making a lot of these decisions. And so we have to be their voice and we have to look out for them because their lives are literally in, their lives are literally in our hands as we decide how we're going to move forward in this world. And then the other aspect we're bringing in is the idea of elders and, and you know, uh, intergenerational dialogue, you know, and I'm not talking about elders, I'm talking about elders you know, the wise ones, the ones we, we look to to help guide us as we're spinning around on this planet. And, and the young ones need elders to step up. So if you're an elder, step up. And if you're a young one, find, find an elder that you respect. And hopefully there are people there that you do respect. Sometimes it's hard to find. But yes, do that. And so, you know, what we're really about is like intergenerational listening with deep respect for each other, bringing hearts and minds together and sharing worldviews, no matter how different we are. And I love this. Annette on the, on the left is from the Kimberleys in, in Western Australia and Elke on the right is from Northern Germany. I mean, they can't be from worlds. Their worlds are so different, but look at the love in their eyes. Just the love is there. And, and I love that. I love this picture for that. 
And we're living in celebration and unity for the earth and remembering the ancestors and remembering our future generations and, and making sure that what she puts in her mouth is clean, fair, and safe food. And for every child to be able to, and every human and every being to be able to have access to that. Um, I mean, what a concept. It's doable. It should, you know, we should, there's, there should be no uh, want on this earth because there is abundance uh, and it's, and, and people need to stop hoarding resources and there's enough to go around for everybody, even with the population that we have now. And then remembering the sacred. And here's a quote that I love from uh, a writer, Terry Tempest Williams, you know, the eyes of the future are looking back at us and are praying for us to see beyond our time. So thank you. That's it. That's what I got. So anyway, I don't know what time it is. I don't, I have no idea how far I'm supposed to, how much time I have. But hi, Derek. <laughs> We got we got a few more minutes if you have it, Penny. Um, we got a couple questions from online. Is anybody in person here have a couple questions or any question they'd like to ask regarding that wealth of information that Penny just shared? Um, I want to mention a couple things. Like I said earlier, Penny is one of the two permaculture teachers that taught me through the Ecoversity online permaculture course. I definitely recommend checking out ecoversity.org to get plugged in. Um, we, me and Miriam took this course last year, and I know some friends signed up, and they're taking it. And Penny's going to continue to, to teach. So uh, we did have someone ask about a food forest just a second ago. Go ahead and pop that on, Ramiro. It was a pretty basic question, Penny. They're just curious if it's sustainable to try to start a food forest and then travel away for a month. Is that, well, you know, is that you a know, good idea? Once it's established, once it's established, it, uh, you know, once. So for most plants to take really be established and then capital R really be established. It takes about two to three years. Um, but like I, I, you can also put it on drip irrigation depending on the scale. And that's what I've done with my, my food forest. I'm in Washington and also it rains pretty much all year, but they, that only really needs to be on drip irrigation for two years. And then I could walk away. I have a, I've started other food forests that are like 10 years old now and you can walk away and come back in 10 years with nothing. It'd probably be really overgrown but they would still be alive. Those plants would still be there. Most of them. Yeah. Cause once the roots go down and, you know, get access to the deeper groundwater, you're golden. But if you just plant it and then leave, you need to have some water. They need care. Yeah. Good tips. Like you said, Penny, maybe drip irrigation could be, could be uh, an idea, but maybe not the best idea to start a garden and go on the road for a month. Yeah, stay home for a little bit. Anybody here have questions about permaculture or anything interesting? Well, Penny, we want to thank you again so much for your time and for your knowledge. Uh, PennyLivingston.net is where you can turn her work. Also, Ecoversity.org. Give one more round of applause for Penny, everybody. Okay, thank you. All right, we'll talk to you soon, Penny. Thank you. Okay, ciao. Okay going to continue we have 
We have one more speaker coming up, Curtis Stone, the urban farmer. He's been doing some great work for many years. He's going to share with us in just a moment. We're going to take a quick music break. Not a music break. That'll be coming up on Friday. But we're going to take a quick break to show you guys this trailer. If you love all the graphics and things we have on screen, it's thanks to our volunteer team who really stepped up. And again, it is a worldwide team. We have people from around the the world right now who are helping us remotely working and some of them made this beautiful trailer so let's check out this trailer and we'll be back we're going to highlight some watch parties from around the world and we're going to hear from curtis stone we'll be in right 2021 back. the free hearts and minds of the world are standing together in celebration of freedom and community the people are waking and organizing the people are recognizing their own power the people of the world are uniting against the great reset the people are celebrating the Greater Reset. From May 24th to 28th, join us as we gather online and in person for the Greater Reset, from activation to expansion. Over five days, we will focus on practical solutions for the most pressing issues of our time. Over 30 world-class speakers will share ideas in five different themes. May 24th, Mind, Body, and Soul. May 25th, Regenerate the Earth. May 26th, The Counter-Economy. May 27th, Liberating Technology. May 28th, Community and Relationships. Don't miss out on the next step in the Greater Reset. It's time to get activated. This is our world, our way. We want to take a moment to thank our sponsors who helped make this event possible. Bitcoin.com, your one-stop shop for all things crypto. Whether you want to get your first wallet, buy or sell the hottest altcoins, or stay up to date on breaking crypto news, Bitcoin.com has you covered. All check, right. Check. I think we're back, John. Hey. I think we are you? back. Hey, what's up, man? How's it going down in Central Texas? What's... Uh, it's going pretty good. Yeah, we're hanging in there. Had to switch up some tech stuff, but I think I think we're doing good. We got a good connection. And we have a good human cool. connection. We are having some good human connections. How's everybody feeling today out here in, in Ziwa? Make some noise. Make sure to check out our vendors, show some love here, show some love to the food. Shout out to everybody in Texas and everybody who's presented today. John, I know we got one more speaker that you're going to introduce, but should we get to some, showing some of these watch parties? Yeah, let's check out the beautiful community out there all across the world. Let's go ahead and put them on the screen now. Folks can I know send we had pictures people, in. We've, we've got watch parties in different parts of Mexico, watch parties in Europe, watch parties in the U.S., 
That lovely couple. I think they did a People's Reset video, this, this gaggle right here. Nice cropping. We got Derek there in the background. There they go. Here we go. All right. right. They're in the greenhouse for that one. Well, maybe the watch parties work right here for us in Ziwa. But I know that they're on screen online. There we go. There we go. They got the happy frog soil. That's good stuff. Look at that one. That one's awesome. They're watching inside a greenhouse. That's really doing it. <laughs> they're not messing around there. We're planting seeds in their well, head. We they're planting seeds in the ground. There's Derek's best friends. Oh, chickens are watching too. The homies in the garden watching the Greater Reset. Watching on our patio and well, enjoying the party the of one is always welcome. Watching in the car. Man, I hope you know she's we not had a watch earlier. She got the sword. Yeah, she's driving and watching. Way. She's hardcore. <laughs> girl's not messing around. Nice. People Definitely can keep sending their watch party pictures in if you All want right, to drop cool. them in the Telegram chat there. The Greater Reset Telegram chat. We do most of our connection on Telegram besides the in-person connection, of course. So we strongly want to encourage folks to come out and participate there. Okay, well, should Absolutely. we introduce our next speaker? All right, buddy. Well, I'm going to let you, I'm gonna let you introduce... Yeah, go for it. You take over. It's all you. Thank you guys for being here today for the Greater Reset Activation. Awesome. All right. We're super excited to have our headlining closing speaker today. He is someone that is well-versed in all things agriculture and food production systems and also doing it as a business, going down local market. Uh, this guy's YouTube channel and his following, super duper big, very influential. And not only is he good at growing food, he's got a green thumb, but he's also quite the freedom-minded person. So there's always, it's interesting how much overlap there is with independence. It's not just a philosophy. People are truly living independence and growing food is a huge part of that. Uh, he pumps out like $100,000 in revenue from a third of an acre or a quarter of an acre, which is pretty impressive. A lot of people are concerned about how they're going to grow food in their backyard or in the city. Well, Curtis Stone is the urban farmer, and today he's going to share some of his insights and strategies about food production. We're super excited to have him. Take it away, Curtis Stone. All right, can you Woo! guys? <laughs> Thanks, John. You guys can hear me okay? Hear you. Right on. Okay, so I'm going to share my screen. Um, yeah, so I'll I'll do um, I'll go through this and I'll leave some time for Q and A. It sounds like that'll work out good. So um, I just want to say, first of all, I'm, I'm just honored and privileged to be here with you guys. I, I really, really appreciate what you guys are doing and uh, what, what a fantastic lineup of speakers. I wish I could be down there in Ziwa. I used to go to Ziwa all the time. And uh, if I wasn't living in a sort of uh, police state right now, I would be there. But, um, but I'm happy to be here nonetheless. 
Today, I'm going to talk to you guys about something that is relatively new um, for content regarding farming. And let me just get my screen shared here. And this is to talk about farming cooperatives. Can you see my screen there okay? Just the, the single slide? I'm assuming you can. Um, and uh, this is something we started last year, kind of did it, um, kind of just did it because, well, let's be honest, the shit was hitting the fan. And um, and I just got to thinking about solutions. For, for me personally, you know, I've been farming for 10 years, but I've also been a, a professional content creator, if you will, um, for about six years. And I've spent a lot of time traveling around the world, visiting farms, uh, showcasing them on my uh, membership site from the field.tv or my YouTube channel. And uh, in 2019, I actually had like a massive road trip planned throughout the United States. I was going to visit about 23 different states and, you know, dozens of farms. But that whole plan got kiboshed uh, with all the border shutdowns and this sort of rollout of this technocracy that we're in the middle of. So I decided to make other plans and um, kind of was thinking on my feet. And I said, you know what, why don't we just start another farm <laughs> and, and I'll build it all from scratch because I've built a lot of farms around the world, actually, just especially in my, all of my consulting work. And I thought, let's just try something new. Let's build a cooperative farm and kind of showcase what a bootstrapped farm would look like if you do it with collectively with, with a group of people. And I, I'm really excited about this model. We're on year two with this, and it's just been a, just an unbelievably beautiful ride with the people that we're working with. It's, it's everything that the New World Order doesn't want us to do. It's, um, it's anarchistic in nature. It's community-based. Uh, we're just basically a collection of 12 families. So we have 12 members uh, but collectively with all the kids and stuff, there's well over 30 people involved. And it's just it's just an awesome project. And it's a it's actually a surprisingly inexpensive way to grow a lot of food. And um, I'm going to share some of how this we've built this um, over the last couple of years with you guys today. We're going to talk about I'll give you kind of an overview of what it is. We're going to talk about how it's structured. We're going to look at some of the crops we grow, how the field is laid out how we developed it. We'll look at some infrastructure and then just kind of finish up talking about uh, how it's going to be moving forward. And uh, yeah, let's just, let's just jump into it. So we call this farm SHTF farm and we're in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. And um, right now there's 12 members. So each of those members is kind of like a family, but it's basically 12 people that have bought in to this structure and, you know, we all kind of came together with the desire to grow food together, have um, an outlet where we could have community, you know, while everybody else is social distancing and isolating in their dark apartment buildings. We were like, we're not doing that. So <laughs> this is this is somewhere we can all come together and uh, hug each other and high five each other and our kids can play and we can get all of our kids inoculated with good micro. Uh, microbacteria in the soil and uh, we can grow some food and have some fun. And so that was really kind of the motivation behind it. Another one for me on a personal note was I wanted to 
really disseminate the information and experience that I have from farming to some people specifically locally. You know, I've, I've definitely done, uh, done that to you know, maybe at least half a million people like on my YouTube channel over the last six years, but, but I wanted to actually do it locally. And this was kind of just thinking, uh, beyond the scope, you know, like the great permaculture slogan, uh, think globally, act locally, and uh, really kind of make an impact on my community. And may maybe it's a legacy project, I don't know. But um, it's something too that I won't be involved in for much longer as well. And so I'll talk about a bit of that at the end. But um, I'm actually in the middle of developing a 40 acre off grid, you know, large scale permaculture off grid property. And so that's actually taking a lot of my time right now, most of it. Um, and when I come back into town in Kelowna, I usually like put in half a day on the farm, get a bunch of people to come there, work with me, and then they can finish the work throughout the week. That's kind of how it's been going. But um, this is how we started. Uh, excuse my chicken scratch handwriting. But we started with five members. And uh, so this was in 2020. Five of us came together. We uh, And these, again, five families we all put in $5,000 and we started with a $25,000 budget. These are Canadian dollars. And we used that money to buy greenhouses, uh, landscape fabrics, irrigation, some tools, nursery supplies. We have a $2,000 lease per year on our farm. Our initial seeds, compost, equipment rentals, things like that. Basically, after everything last year, we had $8,000 left over. Now, this budget might seem like a lot to somebody who really wants to bootstrap it. And it probably is because we, we wanted to kind of just go all out and, and really set this farm up. Um, the biggest, our, our biggest expense was our greenhouses. I'll show you those. We spent about $3,000 each. So right there, you know, that's $12,000 of the budget. That's almost half the budget. But we're in a cold climate up here in um, Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. We're a zone 6B. That's a North American climate zone. And so we really wanted to have greenhouse extension and crops, fresh things that we could eat all winter. So that was a really big, important thing for us. For, for some people, you might not need that kind of infrastructure. Or you could, maybe you could do it way simpler. And so when you look at our budget, keep that in mind. That's how it worked. Um, we also had some income on the farm. And so the farm isn't a commercial farm. However, we often have surplus at certain times of the year, predominantly in summer. And we have a couple different farms that we can basically just sell our overflow product to. And so we did a bit of that last year, but it wasn't really anything significant. But, it, you know, it might have put a couple thousand bucks back into the Kaffir's. Uh, which was nice. But so at the end of year one, we had $8,000 left over. And what we wanted to do in year two, and this was kind of the goal with this all along, is we wanted to increase our membership because on this land that we're on, you know, five members, it was a lot. Like we we, we grew more, more stuff than we really needed. And we didn't even actually use the whole field. You can see like this is this photo here is in August and there was chunks of the field that we didn't even use. So we thought, okay, let's expand the membership. And then what we're going to do is we're going to bring in new members. They're going to pay less than what we started with. Um, and then what we did was we reimbursed our founding members at $3,500 each 
that meant that our founding members were only invested in for 1500 and the new members were invested in for 2500 the reason we did that is because the founding members did all the initial legwork we prepped the field from scratch which i'll show you shortly we built greenhouses we did all the in- irrigation install we felt that that was worth at least a thousand dollars it probably could have been worth more but we were happy with that number and that's what we did And so um, going into year two, we had another $8,000 left for the budget after we paid everybody back. And so far, that's been more than enough than what we needed. So that's kind of how it's structured. There's no legal structure to this. We're all basically anarchists. And so we are all just like, you know what? We're all good on our word. We're going to do that. Um, We have a little bit of a written agreement with our lease where, uh, where we get this farm, where we lease this land from. But I've, I've been friends with these farmers for years, too. So it's, it's pretty solid there, too. So that's kind of how it's, uh, it's structured. Let's talk a little bit about crops. So last year, when we, when we just had the five members, again, it was like five couples and families, basically. But we, we, we really only had the goal because, like, we had to break ground last year. And then we had to build a lot of infrastructure. It meant that our season didn't get started as early as it did this year. So we basically said, okay, what do we need to do? Like, what can we grow if shit really hits the fan and we go into a dark winter where we can't get food? We basically just focused on storage crops. Uh, We did some green uh, tomatoes and things like that. I'll show you some slides of some crops, but we mostly focused on getting crops in the ground by June and then having a lot of surplus of stuff going into winter so that we basically had totes full of potatoes and winter squash and onions and things like that, that we could preserve or, or store for the winter in case we came into food shortages at the time too, most of our members were already avid gardeners. So everybody was already kind of growing salad greens and herbs and cucumbers and stuff like that in their gardens. And so we just focused on storage crops, but that changed going into this year because now we have 12 members, not everybody has gardens. And so this year we basically expanded, we doubled our field capacity by basically just saying, well, okay, instead of just having one rotation per bed, meaning that one crop is planted in a bed and then it's harvested and then it sits fallow for the year, we'll do two. So each of these beds will get, two crops in them. And so we were effectively able to double our production by doing it that way. And so some of the crops we grew are potatoes. We did a lot of potatoes. This year we're doing more than twice, about three times as many potatoes because we're doing multiple rotations. Uh, Onions and shallots and leeks and stuff like that. Um, Really focused on storage varieties, like like good keepers. So red wing onions is one that uh, we'll keep for a year. In fact, I still have a lot of onion surplus from last year sitting in my, in my cool room in my house. So, you know, that's a, a good example of a really good keeper, even potatoes too. I just finished my potatoes from last that we harvested last September. And then we did some stuff like uh, kale and uh, broccoli rab or rapini broccoli. This is a broccoli that just, it sends up shoots so you can kind of keep harvesting it. I, I find if you're just looking at food poundage per square foot, um, it's way better to grow this crop than large broccoli heads because it just it's cut and coming and it keeps coming. And so we did a lot of this kind of stuff uh, in the winter. So these crops 
would have been established into our greenhouses by August. And then we had them in the tunnels all winter long. So we were able to harvest these things throughout the winter, even at minus 20 degrees Celsius. Uh, carrots, uh, another one. That's also another crop we did into winter. We were able to eat all winter long. Uh, beets would be another one. Uh, and, and that, so again, some stuff from last year. Even we, we even grew corn. We're not doing corn this year because it's just not quite as worth it. Uh, when we when we weigh out other crops, but we did a lot of corn last year, and we even processed it and dried it. Uh, some of us milled it up into uh, like a meal. So we, you know, we use that for all kinds of. Uh, purposes in the kitchen uh, but we won't be doing that again this year tomatoes we did a lot of tomatoes last year we did one greenhouse of tomatoes last year we're doing two greenhouses of tomatoes this year um, and that's you know a, that's a great storage crop too not only are tomatoes really easy to save seed from, from you know in a, in a sort of shit hits the fan scenario but they're also really easy to preserve whether you're canning or making a paste or even dehydrating them Tomatoes are just an all-around good storage crop. Uh, so some of the stuff we're doing this year, we're doing peas and beans all on uh, trellises. This is just basic trellis system we use. Um, Seven-foot T-posts with just concrete wire and just wires strapped to them. And then the peas and the pole beans uh, do the same exact same way. Just grow up the trellises and we get huge yields uh, from doing it this way. And uh, again, another kind of fresh crop. Last year, we didn't do any of that stuff. Uh, more kale. This is just some picks from the farm this morning, actually. Um, more, more, we're doing more salad greens and stuff like that. Some spin, some early spinach just coming along. Some arugula, some uh, mustard greens, or some radishes there in the back bed. Quicker crops. And um, peppers, doing peppers. And there's some cukes in here as well. So, you know, a whole greenhouse dedicated to peppers and cucumbers. So, Again, more taking on a lot more crop diversity this year. And this, uh, I, I could spend a lot more time going through all the different types of crops we're doing. Um, just to name a few more, uh, celery, celeriac, turnips, beets, uh, head lettuce, uh, all kinds of squash and melons. In fact, uh, this whole block here, uh, is going to be all squash and melons this year. And so those are good storage crops. Um, and so, yeah, that, in a nutshell, that's kind of what we're growing on the farm. But uh, we've got four greenhouses this year, and uh, we'll be able to really have a strong fall this year and a really, really strong spring uh, in the following year. So the field itself is just under half an acre, so 0.39 of an acre. And that measurement is exactly what you see here, it's just the perimeter and the blocks and all the space in between. That's 0.39 of an acre. Um, each block is, is uh, this is fairly standard in market gardening, uh, is, a, is 50 foot long by 48 foot wide. And um, we're farming just a standard 30 inch bed, just like people have seen me do in my the Urban Farmer videos on YouTube for a long time. So we're doing the, doing it the same way here. I actually have to say, you know, having changed my contacts quite a bit over the years, now more of a homesteader and uh, off-grid guy than I am a market gardener, I still really believe in the 30-inch market garden standardized bed for vegetable gardens, whether you're like a small-scale market farm or you're even just like a large-scale homestead. A 30-inch bed 
um, at some kind of standardized length is, is, is a really fantastic use of space. And it also takes into consideration ergonomics and things like that too. So I really stand by that model and that's why we replicated this uh, even though this farm isn't commercial. So we have 60, 50 foot beds here. So they're not all in production right now, but I, I just took this drone shot this morning. So right now we're about just over 50% of the field planted out and tomorrow we'll actually have this next block planted out, but uh, it's moving along. So, you know, 60, 50 foot beds is, is quite a bit of food. And uh, right now we're hoping that it's going to be enough for all of the produce needs for our 12 members for the entire year. So that's obviously not going to be if somebody wants bananas and lemons and things like that. But as far as seasonal produce goes, um, we're planning that this is going to be enough. So they're divided up into 12 beds per block. So the greenhouses have four beds each. There's 18 inch walkways between the beds. And then we've got two beds uh, here and two beds between the greenhouses. That's kind of how the field is laid out. And this is kind of what we started with. So April 1st last year, I uh, was speaking to some friends of mine who are farmers that are getting prepared to retire. And um, it was kind of an interesting way this whole thing started. Not only did I have, you know, the shit hitting the fan on my mind, that was really on my mind, but something that I've always done for years is I've kind of connected farmers to one another and I'm, I'm a very social guy and so I'm always trying to just find ways to just like help people and so I had um, my friends Jim and Lorena who own this six acre farm it's a it's a 30-year organic certified organic orchard and they were looking to retire and um, they were looking to have some you know maybe somebody take over the farm because they didn't want to leave the farm they didn't want to get off the farm or sell it but just like many farmers today, especially older generation farmers, they have a hard time convincing their kids to take over the farm. So I knew of a couple, some friends of mine, Lindsay and Blair, who actually lived like really close to this. They were thinking about expanding their production in some way, but they weren't really sure what they were going to do. And so there was a number of conversations um, that kind of led me to think, well, man, maybe I should just connect the two of you guys and you guys should take over Jim's orchard. And then I, I told Blair and Lindsay at the time I was like, cause I was getting out of farming commercially. I actually at that point had already been out of farming for like commercially for about two years. And, um, I, I kind of was missing it actually. And I kind of wanted to get back into it. I kind of missed running my BCS rototiller and kind of doing some of the work that uh, you do on the farm. And I was also looking for interesting ways to create content because I wasn't able to travel and do all this kind of uh, traveling to make videos for my website and YouTube channel that I was planning to do. And I said to them, I said, you guys should run a, why don't you guys run a market garden? You guys are young. They had, you know, their kids are the same age as mine. And uh, they didn't really want to run a commercial farm, but just through conversations, this whole idea of doing a cooperative farm came up because I thought, well, then you know what? It'd be kind of cool because if you work with me for a couple of years, you'll really see a lot of the work that has to be done for a market garden. And so eventually, if they wanted to take this over and run it commercially, they could do that. And that is something that might happen in the future because I'll talk a bit more at the end. I'm kind of transitioning my way off this farm because I'm not living in the city anymore. Well, not for long. I've got this 40-acre homestead in the middle of nowhere on a mountain. 
and I'm, I'm doing that. And so um, that's kind of where it could go. But anyway, so we started with this, this dilapidated orchard strip, which was, you know, this, these three rows of old apples, Jim wanted to take them out anyways, because they were like literally 30 years old. They they had some disease in them. There was a, there's a new soft fruit pest in the area that had caused some problems there. So they thought, well, we don't want it anyways. So it was the perfect site to get started with. And uh, initially what we did was uh, Jim went in and he uh, cut the trees down and then he um, just had a, a backhoe and just pulled out all the old roots. And then he was nice enough to do an initial rip with a uh, cultivator plow for me. And then from there, I was able to come in with my uh, BCS walk behind tractor and basically till it up as I normally do to prepare land and make it plantable. Uh, at this point now, we're, we're, we're no longer tilling. We're just shallow cultivation. So once we did our initial ground break, put in all of our compost, all that, we follow a, uh, a low till uh, strategy as far as turning the beds over. We had a ton of rocks to remove on this field. It was quite gnarly. Uh, spent probably a week or more uh, of just basically going back and forth over these beds to get rocks out. It was just brutally rocky. It's actually geologically, it's an old riverbed. So there's just tons of river rock in it. And it's so bad in some places, we actually you have to use a hilti drill to put in... Um, to put in our trellises or put in our greenhouse posts. It was just crazy, crazy rocky. Initially we brought in uh, 20 yards of compost. And so we just, there's a local compost supplier here in the area and we got 20 yards and that was enough to give us um, about two inches of compost on all of these 60 beds. And so that's kind of what it looked like. We basically just top dress. So once we get our beds shaped, you know, and we do that te- that deep tillage at, at the beginning, never again do we need to do any deep tillage. It's just kind of a thing to break the ground up, incorporate, um, uh, or just kind of mix up the soil a bit because it hasn't it ha- it just been walked on for many years. So we had to break through. We broad forked it loosened up the subsoil and then we just top dress with the compost and then that's essentially what we would plant into but uh what we um what we did for our initial uh site prep was right after we top dressed the beds with compost any beds that weren't going to be planted right away we covered them in silage tarps and this is a a fairly common practice in market gardening it's really a, a good soil um preserving practice because what it does is it allows the the soil time to regenerate and then but you also reduce weed pressure blowing in and then you also uh, do what's called a stale seed bed where you um, allow by watering the beds getting the compost on there you put the tarp on you kind of create this warm microclimate so this is in April it's still not super warm out but with a black tarp facing up, it creates a neat little warm microclimate. And then those little weed seeds that are in the surface of that soil start to just germinate and they pop up. And then if the tarp stays on long enough, you pull it off. When you go to plant, basically have 
all of your soil microbiology there, as well as the worms come right to the surface and they even finish the compost for you. And then you have no weeds. So it's really a, a, a strategy that's about soil, but it's about labor mitigation as well. Oh, it's just another shot of me uh, preparing the beds initially before the compost. And then um, when those beds are finished, basically we tarp the whole field. And that, this is what we did at the start too, because we didn't, we didn't like have to plant anything right away. In the first year, we didn't put our first crops in until about late May or early June. So in April, we basically prepped everything up and just tarped it. It sat like that for a month. Some of those blocks sat like that for, for two months. And uh, it, worked, it works really good because then, you know, you just have so much less weed pressure going into the season. We were kind of, I just wanted to show this slide of, of, of Steadfast Farm. This is a really good friend of mine's market farm down in Mesa, Arizona, uh, Eric Schultz. And we were kind of modeling this as a layout. You know, it's a long strip. This farm is way bigger than ours, but uh, this is an acre market garden. But uh, we were kind of modeling that as far as how we laid the farm out. Of course, you know, our beds were orientated a little bit differently, um, but this is the basic idea. Uh, this farm is actually 100 foot beds, so they're quite a bit longer than ours. Uh, and of course, it's bigger, there's more permanent infrastructure and all that. But that's kind of what we were modeling when we were first laying the farm out. Now, I just want to talk a little bit about some of the infrastructure on the farm. Uh, some of the, and, and this would kind of go into some of the things that we initially set up when we got this farm going. But um, so here's some of our irrigation. We use a, a combination of irrigation. We use what are called mini wobblers. That's these guys here and here. We can put two uh, on one run and we can have two of those per block and it's enough to water everything in the block. So that's a overhead watering solution for us. And we also use drip tape, which I'll so show you in a second. But we, we set up our manifolds like this. So basic two, uh, one and a half inch PVC, we used these um, uh, slip lock or whatever they're called. They're basically like a PVC lock where you don't need to use glue. I think they're just fantastic because you can reuse them. And we uh, set up our headers like this. It's really simple stuff. A lot of this was old infrastructure, particularly the stuff that's all dirty was, was stuff that I had left over from my commercial farm, Green City Acres from um, when I closed it. Well, I didn't close it. I never actually closed it, but I basically stopped operating it commercially in 2018. And so I had all this extra stuff that I was able to throw into the mix for this farm. That's kind of how we set these headers up. Each block has a timer. Our, our initial, um, main header on the farm was just buried in the soil um, about a foot deep. You know, it, it's a seasonal line, so it all gets blown out in the uh, in the fall. So we don't have to really worry about water access in the winter. And even for greenhouse crops in the wintertime, they don't uh, they don't get watered when it's below freezing here. And this is kind of how we irrigated this this plot out. Um, if people are curious, I, I documented all of this at fromthefield.tv. I basically vlogged this the setup of this entire farm. It's almost like a mini course. If you go and watch my videos at fromthefield.tv, I documented everything, how we built this. I did all these. This is a screenshot of some of the videos, but I detailed all of it there if people are curious. I rarely post to YouTube anymore um, just because it's kind of you know, censorship hellhole. <laughs> so I, I mostly just do things on my own platform, which is been far better 
But uh, this is the uh, layout. So we've got our main water that comes in. We've got this one and a half inch line that goes under the ground. And then it splits off three or four times for each of these blocks. So it comes up this way. And then this one waters uh, is able to deliver water to two blocks. And then it skips this one over. Same thing here. And then we have the last block water there. And then this is sort of an auxiliary line because we were planning to put a pack house there, but we never actually did. So that's kind of how the water is laid out there. And these are how our wobblers uh, actually work. They um, they have this overlapping pattern. So four of them uh, is enough to water this entire block. So we've got about 40 or 50 PSI coming from our main. We run this half-inch poly tubing with a header coming along to here. We've also put an on-off valve uh, here and here. So if I only need to water one of these lines at any given time, I can do that. But, uh, these have, um, these overlap and it's enough to basically deliver water to each corner of the field block. And there's a shot of some of those, uh, PVC polylock, uh, pieces we use for this system. And here's our drip irrigation system and how it works. It's all a half inch header, just like you see here. Um, and then we've built the headers for each bed. And so there's four lines, um, four drip lines for each one. These are six inch emitters. So there's a half gallon, a half gallon an hour, um, emitter every six inches on this poly tube. And this is kind of what it looks like. So we've got an on off valve here. That's, a uh, punctured into the main header. So that way we can turn off any particular beds that we're not in, we don't need to water. And then it's just, it's just uh, modulock poly for each of this, uh, three T couplers and an elbow coupler. And that's basically our headers. Uh, the, the reason I like this system, uh, some people just go everything into the main header. But the reason I like this is so if we're turning over beds, I don't have to uncouple all of the lines. I can just uncouple it here or here. And then I can pull the whole thing off and then you know, you get one person on the end of each bed and you can clear the, the, the irrigation off the beds really quickly. So it's just kind of more efficient and it kind of just keeps things together. Looking at our greenhouse infrastructure, this is, these are what we built. These are totally DIY and uh, we spent about $3,000 each on these uh, USD. So they were like 3,400 something Canadian. And uh, we built these all from scratch. So all we purchased for these was chain link fencing materials. Uh, so it's it's chain link fence top rail. And we bent them and and just found all the hardware that we needed for these locally. And I'll show you some of that. But, you know, if you have the time, building a greenhouse DIY is a massive savings. So to buy uh, a, a finished polytunnel kit like this, it's 17 and a half feet wide uh, and they're 55 feet long to buy a kit like that would probably cost you around $10,000 to get that kind of coverage. Um, and so if you DIY it, you can just do it for way cheaper. And so again, if you have the time and we had the time because we had a bunch of members that uh, we're all working for free and you know, it's all fun. And so it's totally worth it. And uh, it, it's a significant savings. I'll just kind of show you some of the infrastructure on these tunnels. Um, we've got on one end, we have more complicated end walls. 
And this is because in the wintertime when we come into these tunnels, we're only going and accessing through this pathway here. So we wanted to have doors that were easy to come in and out of. And they actually have these neat little magnets on them that uh, so that when they close, they stay shut. It's a really brilliant idea one of our members came up with. And then on the outside ends, we have these basic, they're called scissor doors. If you just Google that or look around online, don't use Google. <laughs> if you look around online, you'll see what a scissor door is. But it's a, it's a really inexpensive and simple way to do doors. And so we did scissor doors on the ends of these just because they're only used for ventilation. They're not really used for access. Access is always here. And so that was a way of re really, really reducing costs on these greenhouses as well because to build end walls like these, you all know the price of lumber right now. And I can tell you, you know, I'm building a house right now and uh, my lumber cost is 400%. So um, anything you can save uh, makes a difference. Uh, here's a shot on the inside of these tunnels. Again, they're not super fancy, but they work and they're DIY. Uh, you know, get even these kind of unstraight uh, ridge, ridge line there, but they work, right? Um, these are just coupling joints that we used that come from uh, those sort of winter garage kits. You see people putting those little shelters in their, um, in their driveways in the winter and like kind of Eastern seaboard cities. That's essentially all they are. And we DIY'd everything, including the, the roll up sides. Just had a friend of mine weld some rebar together and then put a little uh, receiving joint into the, the metal there on the roll up sides you know, standard channel lock and things like that that we're using, greenhouse poly, all stuff that's easily sourceable even right now. And this is kind of how we we built all this stuff. So we built jigs for the metal, and then we did all of our bends using this special roller, and we just kind of cranked it out, you know, all hands on deck uh, for a few days and just bustled through it and got it done and built all these greenhouses from scratch. And again, it saved us a significant amount of money. Uh, it was just time. So we still use some of the kind of classic market garden tools on the farm. There's a, a BCS 739. These actually weren't paid for within our budget because I had these tools, you know, 10 years as a farmer, uh, uh, paper pot transplant or stuff like that. So I, I've kind of like letting the farm use these tools. But one thing I would say somebody could do uh, if they wanted to start a farm like this is you don't need to buy these things, especially a, a, a rototiller. You only need these things to break ground and to maybe rotate your beds once a year. You can, you can rent these things. And this tool in particular allows me to do shallow cultivation. This is a, an implement that I actually invented, uh, worked with BCS on. It's called the, the precision depth roller. So this roller on the back, um, you can bring it the, the tiller as high or low as you want off the ground. And so this allows us to do super shallow cultivation, which is really good as far as uh, soil microbi microbiological health. Paper pot transplanter. So we're really big on the silage tarps and the landscape fabric. These two things save us a significant amount of time in weeding. And uh, even this year, we went further and we just put uh, landscape fabric on this entire path here which was getting grassy and weedy last year and we were always having to worry about mowing it and worrying about grass dropping seeds on these edge beds here and so we decided to just spend 400 bucks we bought ourselves a 10 foot wide roll and just did the whole thing put landscape fabrics or, or landscape pins every three feet 
and boom, no more weed problems. I mean, we still get weeds from surrounding areas, but that's inevitable. And uh, yeah, so the silage tarps too, huge for the stale seed bedding process, keeping blocks covered that aren't being used um, just so they don't collect weeds and where the soil doesn't dry out. This keeps, this keeps the moisture in the soil. And um, just a cup, uh, you know, shot of some of our winter crops, direct seeding spinach there in October, kale and broccolini going year round or go going into the winter. We had tons of some that stuff uh, available for us throughout the winter, which was, which was fantastic. That's a shot of the farm uh, last November. We don't get a ton of snow here in the Okanagan, but we, we do get it. And uh, you know, we get, as low as minus 10. Sometimes we get as low as minus 20, but only for short periods of time. But uh, even at those kinds of temperatures with unheated greenhouses, we're able to keep crops like spinach, carrots, kale, beets, radishes, turnips, parsnips. We can keep those things in greenhouses in the ground all winter long. And you don't need any heat. It's, this is more just about keeping the fall rain and the snow off the crop so that you can get in there and harvest them throughout the winter. And so this winter will be more or less the same thing. I think we'll probably have more in the ground because of our membership has increased. But um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. And I'll just finish up and I think we'll have, we'll have a decent amount of time for questions if we, if there are some, but um, moving forward, what we're planning to do is, Basically, we're going to expand the field. We've got these kind of two ends um, here and here where we could put some more beds into rotation. We didn't use them at first because we thought we would have more infrastructure on the field. Turns out we don't really need it. So we're going to expand the field um, probably this summer and get that ready for uh, next year. And we will potentially expand the membership. So kind of what 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 it looks like our model is like is where you can have an incremental growth in the cooperative every year you bring in new members which brings in new capital and when the when the membership get more skilled you can increase production and so a lot of people don't really they think oh in order to grow more food you just need to have more land with an experienced farmer, that's not the case. It's actually your experience is for the most part what dictates how much more production you can do. So I'm, I'm quite confident that we could add another, at least another five members next year. And because our membership that's there now, especially our founding members, will be so much more experienced that we'll be able to get three rotations on average out of these beds. So we'll be able to almost double the field production again for those members. We took, we took on seven new members last year. I think if I were to like offer this as advice to somebody and say, you know, how do you expand this, keep some new capital coming in, keep some fresh face coming in, coming in without kind of expanding too much at the beginning, I would just say, let less people in for longer. So if I would have had to do it again, I would say, you know, we started with five, maybe we should have just brought in three new members last year or the next year and then three the next year and then three the next year you could essentially do that for maybe five years and you wouldn't see any loss in production because your memberships sort of human capital experience is going to increase as you go and that's a big thing for me because 
I'm transitioning myself out of this farm entirely over the next couple of years. So I've committed to, uh, cause I'm not fully out of Kelowna yet, but I will be in a couple months as we're selling our house here. Um, I've committed to being totally part of the farm this year and, and directing it and doing, you know, the lion's share of delegation and, and even work um, to make sure the membership is getting that experience and knowledge from me. And then next year, so in 2022, I won't be working on the farm nearly as much. I might show up at key times because I'll probably have to come into Kelowna every now and then anyways, come in at key times to do some major season delegation. I'll even, I've even promised them that I'll do the farm plan and all that. And I can even do that remotely. So perhaps I'll be involved with this farm forever, but after 2022, I probably won't even be on the field anymore. If anything, I'll just be delegating from afar where I, you know, they send me photos online and I kind of give them advice and just kind of act as a consultant uh, for them. And so that's kind of how it's going to be moving forward for us. And uh, I really hope you guys found this valuable and I'd really love to see more people do this. I think, you know, land ownership and capital costs for starting a farm are huge barriers to entry for young people and new farmers in general. And the thing that I've, I hope I've proven with this model, as I have with my book, The Urban Farmer, and the work that I've done online for the last six years, is that you don't need to own land to farm. You know, we're all passing through anyways. People get so hung up on what ownership means. And I know that's a big tagline for our folks at the uh, New World Economic Forum, that you'll own nothing to be happy. And I'm certainly not promoting that kind of thing. But I'm just saying, you know what, if you don't have the cash, you don't have to go and buy a big acreage. There's ways to get into farming without owning land. And I hope that I've demonstrated that with this and the work that I've done over the last six years. So that is that. And if we have time, I'd be happy to um, take some questions for you guys. All right. Good stuff, Curtis. Wow. I'm impressed. <laughs> Thank you. Cool that we got a live audience here. That's great. Feels like less Zoom Collie. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I'm super impressed. Hey, everybody. Super impressed with uh, what you have accomplished in your own private land that you own and then with this group thing. It's just, you know, you're part of the Freedom Cell Network too. I'm curious if you recruited totally. anybody for the co-op from the Freedom Cell Network. Um. No, we didn't because everybody that came in was basically somebody I already knew. So, and that I'm just like an extremely social guy. So if, you know, if I wasn't who I was, I probably would have gone there, but I will tell you that I have met a lot of people in the freedom cell network and that's been really cool. So real hats off to you, John, for making that whole thing happen. And I think now more than ever, that is uh, that network is, is more important than it's ever been. Well, you've showed Freedom Cell folks something really cool that they do together. And one thing that we really highlight with the Greater Reset is doers. So I am sure Absolutely. that you started off with this a tiny itty bit of knowledge when it comes to food production and you just kept at it. And now, wow, now you're sharing that, that knowledge and that just that ability to get stuff done, GSD, get stuff done uh, with other people. Totally. So that's great. Do we have any questions from the audience? Yeah, come on up. 
you'll share your name with the audience and ask your question. Look at his shirt, too. It's perfect, perfectly fitting. Certified Naturally Girl. An organization trying to do a different certification besides USDA Organic, but I'm wondering if you've heard, first of all, thank you for your work and the way that you can show people that this stuff is doable and scalable and all that. But I want to give a shout out to an organization here in Texas and United States, Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. To everyone taking notes out there, FARFA, Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. I was at one of their conferences and they had a good idea of, uh, I mean, of course, probably y'all do this in co-ops, but it's a down in South Texas for some meat processing where they just share equipment. So it's like, so, and they had a refrigerated, I think, uh, meat processing unit. So that's the thing. It's like you were saying, you don't have to pay for these equipment every season, but you can just share it amongst the, the co-op. Totally. So thank you for your work. Yeah. yeah thanks, man. Right on. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. And um, that's another thing too. That's a, another way that you can share with people is, or, or, or share resources with people is also collaborate with other farmers. And like I mentioned in the, the slideshow there, that's one thing that we did. And that's how we sold some of our product is that, you know, I, I'm fairly connected in the community, the farming community here. So we've got places where we can uh, uh, sell our stuff. Awesome. I think too, a great point is that you don't, you guys don't own that land there. It looks like no. the lease was maybe $2,000 a month. Uh, no, two a year, two thousand a year, yeah, two thousand a month. Oh, wow, <laughs> that's so accessible. I, I just want your story to be a testament to folks to uh, to try to break through any limiting beliefs that they may have. You know, I'm sure that money is something. This is this is out of our reach. It's inaccessible. We're struggling, barely getting by. But like we said at the beginning of the Greater Reset, when you bring in community and you work with your fellow human beings, it just makes everything more possible. So, oh, kudos totally. to you. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have any other questions? Yeah, come on up. Introduce yourself, Mr. Bill. Hey, Bill Workman. I enjoyed the presentation. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about for that particular farm what the water needs were and kind of what the water source was. How, you know, how yeah, did you what, water, water source is just the basic. is is the is provided by the municipality so this site is far from off grid my, my new site is completely off grid and it's all mountain water but uh yeah that's just the basic municipally provided ag water which all the orchards there get uh it i i i, I couldn't give you a number on what we used um because it's so inexpensive that it's insignificant i think we paid a hundred dollars for the year um all the farms in the area have i guess is it subsidized i don't know if it's subsidized but they have cheap water basically so the water is um you know our basic municipal water it doesn't have fluoride in it or anything like that um but uh it probably has chlorine in it but uh yeah that's what it was all right thank you so much curtis we really appreciate uh having you partake in this event do you want to share some websites or youtube channels and stuff where people yeah. can reach you to learn more yeah. Totally. So the best place to get me these days is from the field.tv. That's my life's work. That's where 99% uh, of the content videos that I make go there. There's also a number of other content creators there. Uh, Dakota Cohen, Rob Avis, um, Stephen Cornett, just to name a few. And uh, a lot of changes coming up for that in, 
we already had a lot this year and in the new year i still have my youtube channel up it's still monetized actually because i delete my live streams which i do every uh 9 a.m pacific standard time on thursdays and uh, so i still have tons of content up on youtube i also have channels on odyssey and bitshoot and i have a, a podcast that's more truther based content uh, which is called liberty on the land where i interview a lot of kind of sovereign people and and kind of explore ideas about how we obtain liberty on the land in sort of a metaphorical and literal sense. Uh, they can go to libertyontheland.com to find that. I also post them on BitChute as well on my BitChute channel. If you just search the Urban Farmer on Odyssey or BitChute, you'll find that. And yeah, that's pretty much everything me. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again. He's a free man on the land, working the land. All right. Okay. Uh, before we close everything down, we're going to take a short uh, listen to some of our sponsors that help make this work possible, and then we will be back to send you guys off. Thanks to Float Social Network. Believe it or not, there's still a place where you can share whatever floats your boat. No censorship, no data mining, no deplatforming, just wide open freedom. Join the network at float.app. That's F-L-O-T-E dot app. And now, without further ado, back to the activation. You're seeing this message right now through the beauty of the internet. This is a place where you can say what you think, express how you feel, and manifest the ideas that you have. But this freedom is under attack. Censorship, mass surveillance, and abusive software services attempt to track and trace everything you do. If you want to protect yourself and you're ready to take your digital life back into your own hands, then join us at Above Agency. We're a team of engineers, privacy researchers, designers, and marketers who help educate people on privacy and technology. We also offer both the product and the service, the Above Office. This office allows you to work completely privately. We support you in running free and open source software on your own servers. You have all the capabilities you need and more. Run your own email, collaborative document editors, calendars and appointments, video conferencing, encrypted messaging, and more. Your servers run on a reliable infrastructure and we administer your server professionally with daily backups. Most of all, we respect your data. We do not share, sell, or transfer logs or data of the server of any kind. Please visit our website at above-agency.com and sign up for the newsletter. Email services at aboveagency.com to learn more about what we can do to help your digital identity. Above Agency, a digital agency for real-world empowerment. All right. Above Agency is Ramiro's outfit, and he there he is back there. There he is, this guy. Him and his team really have been working tirelessly to put this production together, all sorts of late nights, and a lot of the cool videos and effects that you see are some solid volunteers and also some folks that are working with Above Agency. So if you guys have needs in the digital space, business, organization, also, when it comes to privacy, we did this crypto workshop, and Ramiro gave two solid hours of internet privacy, super practical stuff. He'll be able to help you make that all a reality because a lot of it is over people's heads, and that's why we have professionals that can really help make things easy on folks so they can focus on delivering the goods. How are you guys? Uh-oh. 
This is the secret room, the secret bunker, hiding from the federal police. Los federales, vatos. All you got to do is slip them like 200 pesos. I actually prefer that, prefer that method. Some people say it's corrupt and extortion. I'm like, I'd rather deal with that than go to the municipal court. Plus, you can kind of bang on them. Hey, there they are. Not fist bang on them, but negotiate down to... How are you guys doing? Buhale, as my mom says. Uh, we can't hear you, gentlemen. But if you know sign language, perhaps, we can have someone translate. Can you hear us now, John? There he goes. Hard. Yeah. We can hear you. Echo. Yeah. All right. Well, we're just, we just want to say thanks to everybody supporting us here. And uh, we're happy to, have another, happy to have another Greater Reset activation, another event. Thanks for everybody who's been involved today and dealing with our technical difficulties. <laughs> we need to have a technical difficulties slide graphic. That's what we definitely need to have. That one will get a lot of play. We're going to smooth it out. We're learning as we go. I think we finally got the internet issues sorted out here. As you can tell, I hope I'm coming in crystal clear for the audience because it's been rough, but we still have multiple days. One thing I appreciate about what we've delivered so far, what our speakers have delivered, is how it's all intertwined, right? So we started with the mind, body, and soul, but then we had Christian Westbrook who connected the heart back into it, right? And what we're trying to do is present a holistic approach. Oftentimes people are single issue focused or they're just focused on this issue or that, but there's a there's a whole system to it, right? Just like with permaculture, it's whole systems design, but it doesn't just stop with the earth. It also involves the human beings and the human connection and the interconnectivity and the economics of it all. And I think that's something great that, that we deliver here. And then you add the technological aspect of it and it can all be harmonious. A lot of people are like way into the permaculture and they reject the technology. A lot of people are like way into the technology and they don't want to do it the old way, getting your hands dirty. But I think there's some synergy amongst all that stuff. And if we can just adopt this holistic approach, I think it'll really benefit our lives immensely. So this was day two, Regenerate the Earth. Tomorrow we are going to be talking about the counter economy, economics, entrepreneurship. We got a lot of great speakers. I'm looking forward to Brandon Smith of of alt market and we really hope to convey an alternative view when it comes to economics and our own financial life and entrepreneurship and business. It's definitely a big part of the great reset to reshape economics as we know it. They want to create more top-down hierarchy and control and just as we often do a yin and a yang kind of thing, we want to flip that around and bring financial power back to the people. And I hope that's something that we convey. What do you say old Derek Bros? Hey, man, thank you for, again, everybody who's here in Ziwa for being here for this event. Thanks to Johnny and everybody and who's. Thanks to Johnny and everybody here in Mexico. Thanks to my lovely girlfriend, Miriam, for holding it down with me and Ramiro over here. And I want to say, like John said, tomorrow we have the counter economy. I'm going to be talking. John's going to be talking. We have Brandon Smith. We also have a couple of folks that are brand new speakers to the stage that are going to be presenting some alternative economic ideas. I hope you guys will check out. One other reminder, we still have the People's Reset Contest going on at the website. You can submit your video, win up to $500 in Bitcoin Cash. And it's not too late to organize a watch party in your area, wherever you guys are watching. Thanks to all of our friends who've been staying up with us in Europe and across the world. 
I mean, it really is an amazing feeling to know that people will email myself and John and Ramiro and reach out and just tell us like, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I met a beautiful friend who's now a friend in uh, San Cristobal who gave me a hug and shed some tears about how this event changed her life in January. And, And other people have shared those stories. And so we hope everybody really understands the momentum that we're all tapping into here, that there is some potential. We get to decide where the future goes. Bill Gates is not in charge of your future. Klaus Schwab is not in charge of your future. The people are. This is the people's reset. Make some noise. All right, John. Hey, John, why don't we end with the affirmation? You want to do it with me? What are we doing? The the beautiful thing? Yeah, let's start with beautiful. All right, Austin, Ziwa, everybody everybody around the world. Ready? I am powerful. Beautiful. Sorry, beautiful. Let's start, let's start with beautiful. I am beautiful. I am beautiful. I am powerful. I am powerful. I am free. I am free. Woo. See you guys tomorrow. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. In 2021, the free hearts and minds of the world are standing together in celebration of freedom and community. The people are waking and organizing. The people are recognizing their own power. The people of the world are uniting against the Great Reset. The people are celebrating the Greater Reset. From May 24th to 28th, join us as we gather online and in person for the Greater Reset. From activation to expansion. Over five days, we will focus on practical solutions for the most pressing issues of our time. Over 30 world-class speakers will share ideas in five different themes. May 24th, Mind, Body, and Soul. May 25th, Regenerate the Earth. May 26th, The Counter-Economy. May 27th, Liberating Technology. May 28th, Community and Relationships. Don't miss out on the next step in the Greater Reset. It's time to get activated. This is our world, our way.